Just remember what old Jack Burton does when the earth quakes and the poison arrows fall from the sky and the pillars of heaven shake. Yeah, Jack Burton just looks that big old storm right square in the eye and he says, give me your best podcast, pal. I can take it. Pretty good. Pretty good. You know what I realized finally cracked once uh, watching this movie, uh, rewatching this movie for, for today's episode? You, you cracked your Kurt? Well, I, I think I cracked Kurt a little bit. And yeah. he's obviously yeah. got a couple different modes, but this mode, which becomes almost a default for him. Well, this is, he's doing John Wayne. Thank he's you. specifically I, I doing John say. Wayne. I, I finally figured it out. Well, you know, this was written as, a, this was a, the original script was a Western. It was about the formation of Chinatown in San Francisco, set in the 1800s. Yes. yes. And Kurt Russell comes in and is actively doing a John Wayne impression, who he worked with, I believe, as a child. Yes. And this feels like the genesis of that being one of the three main Kurt Russell modes. Like, anytime he has to be mildly funny guy, I feel like he's doing the, the John Wayne rhythms. I want to throw something into the mix here, because I also felt this was a little bit of Kurt Russell throwing some shade at Harrison Ford as mm. Indy. Not in cadence, but in story and attitude. Like, there is in a version looseness. of this. Yes, there is a version of this character. This is definitely an answer to Indy and, and Kurt Russell's attempt at c come, came close to being Han Solo. Yes. Yeah. He was, you know, uh, yeah, and yeah. he's one of the other choices at that time to play Han Solo. And this is also a, a riff on that, except that. And what Kurt Russell is so exceptional at doing, and I know we're in, we're, I, we're just doing it. But like, unlike Harrison Ford's characters, it, 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 Jack Burton is an absolute failure at every stage. He, he has no wins. He yeah. has no wins <laughs> until he kills Lopan. He has yeah. every time he loses. And he takes two shots at Lopan, too. It's and not yeah. even. Yes. Yeah. Which like, is the like the, or, the, or like the one where he's like, all right, let's go. And he shoots into the ceiling and knocks I mean, himself unconscious. Yeah. He has Jeff so Burton many, defined. so yes. many he heroic lines that are then upended by failure. And that's what Harrison Ford never does. Well, I think that what is so interesting about this movie, I'm going back and watching this film. I was a little bit nervous because I haven't seen it in a while. And I know that this is a movie that people absolutely love. I love, or I, I like this movie a lot. I don't think it's my go-to John Carpenter movie, but I know there's people out there that they have the poster on the wall. It's all in on this movie. I think I've appreciated it the most this time, but I would say that I was a little bit nervous. Like, oh, is this going to be like a weird, like kind of racist movie where I'm going to feel like, oh, this didn't age well. And sure. conversely, I think this movie ages so well because you look at it and you go, the white savior myth is completely upended because he is an idiot. And everyone around him is smarter, more, you know, not more interesting, but, but yeah, they no, are more, cap more capable, yeah. yes, more yes. capable, more interesting, more prepared. He is a visitor in the movie that's happening. This is yes. a movie where the, the, the lead character is a guest. He does. He he's not the inciting person. He's not. The stakes don't lie with him. He is a trucker delivering delivering meat to a restaurant and gets sucked into a, like a supernatural war. Not only does he get sucked into it, but he barely affects it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Little impact and anyone else. He's replacement level. Right. Someone he's, else could probably do the same job. In many respects, 
and I don't mean this to be, uh, I don't want anyone to take this in the wrong way, but he is playing the damsel in distress. Yes. Who doesn't know that, that they are the damsel in distress. It's like, cause he does all the moves that you would see in these movies where like, you know, the, the woman runs into the room. Oh my gosh. I, they saw me. Like he does it all. It's really kind of a, it, it's so kind of subversive in that way. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, he's all bluff and bluster, but every time he's called on it, he's like, Whoa, what? You know, yeah. it's he's he's constantly stepping into a fight for the heroic moment. But then when like he's like, like when he steps up to the guys and he's like, now, hang on a second, whatever he says. Now, hang on a second there, guy. And then the guy pulls out a knife and he goes, whoa. And then the other guy pulls out like a blade and he goes, where'd you get that? He's like truly, truly like constantly being undercut. His masculinity and his capability is constantly being undercut at every stage of the movie. But it's also fundamentally not a fish out of water movie because it's also defined by the fact that this guy absolutely thinks he is the lead character and the hero yes. of this story. Like, that's the interesting balance of it. it is it's not guy in over his head, ill-equipped. That's where the comedy comes from. It's the comedy comes from this guy thinks this is a movie entirely about him. And you could yes. Garfield minus Garfield almost every scene. And fundamentally, none of the action really changes that much. He also is staying in circumstances that he has no reason to stay for. You know what I mean? He's got no like skin he in the is game. he just wants that double or nothing. He's got no skin in the game and it's like as opposed to like let's say Michael Douglas in um Romancing the Stone. He's constantly trying to shake Kathleen Turner for like right. for like the beginning of act 2. He's like trying to get rid of her. You know, he doesn't want to be part of this. He doesn't want to get dragged into whatever he is. She is but the minute trouble starts. <laughs> Jack Burton is like, I'm here and I'm in the lead and I'm, don't worry, I've got this. And then he's like, I don't got this, we're trapped. He literally, yeah, he literally is asking, he's like, follow me and then turns to somebody else and says, where do we go? And <laughs> I love that. And there is something that's so fun about that character. And one of the things that they do that I think that is really interesting, and I read this uh, after I watched the movie last night, was that opening sequence where it's sort of this interrogation or or this it, who even knows what this is? Where they really build up his character was something that the studio wanted them to add because they wanted to make this movie a Kurt Russell movie. Yeah. And and it seemed like John Carpenter, and you guys probably know this more than I do, like was okay with it because he felt it further subverted the audience's expectations of it. Like it was interesting because you lead with this three-minute scene, like, don't talk bad about Jack Burton. He's a goddamn hero. And then you realize that it's funny at the end of the movie, like, oh, he's even lying to that. Like, like he's keeping it all quiet. Like they're blaming him in a weird way or they're putting him at the front. So their organization and their society stays quiet and secret. It's, it's, yes. yeah. it's genius. It works. It's kind of crazy because Carpenter took the studio note and found a way to have it play both ways. Yes. Exactly what they want, but, but heighten his own bit. I was just going to say, it's very telling that like, so that's the studio note, you know, reshoot opening added later. In terms of how this movie was originally planned, the, the opening and closing are Jack Burton into the CB radio, right? In his truck, essentially mythologizing himself. Like, oh, yeah. Basically it, a trucker Bukowski kind right. of monologue. But, but all this like Jack Burton isn't the kind of guy who does this, you know, like <laughs> explaining it. Then you watch this movie where when they call his bluff and go like, congratulations, you're in the middle of an action movie. He's like, 
well, of course I am. I'm Jack Burton. Then he <laughs> yeah. fucks everything up, and the movie ends with him being like, let me tell you another thing about Jack Burton. Like, he just views it as an absolute success. Well, what I love is how often he refers to himself as Jack Burton. Right. Like, he's constantly self-mythologizing himself around and narrating. He's almost narrating the movie yes. because he's also having to... And again, it's this is something that I feel like that Indiana Jones or Han Solo would never do, which is he's constantly admitting he doesn't know what's going on. Like, he's he's asking questions in every scene. Where are we going? Where's this? What's this? His skills are he has a knife. He wins an obvious bet. He can drive a truck. That's it, right? Those are, uh, I'm done, right? He can get your movie financed. That's, that's his yeah. biggest skill. He's greenlightable. Well, you guys were on for another Kurt Russell movie. I only realized this after I booked that You guys oh, have now done wow. two Kurt Russell movies. I have a thing for this, which I, I'm going to admit here on the pod, which is the, the first time I saw Big Trouble in Little China was after we did Used Cars. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Interesting. Wow. Okay. Carpenter is a blind spot for me. Wow. Oh, I love <clears throat> Carpenter. Mostly because I am not a horror person. I did not grow up liking horror, being a horror fan. And to me, Carpenter was synonymous with horror. So his movies were set aside for me. They weren't ones I pursued unless they were like Escape from New York, which I knew was not a horror movie, which I saw. The Thing, which was like, which, but I also didn't see The Thing until like probably my 30s. Um, and this I never saw. And then we saw, we watched Used Cars and I was, I then after Used Cars just went on a Kurt Russell jag of all the Kurt Russell movies I'd either never seen or I had forgotten, you know? And this was one of them. And I was so mad when I watched it because I was like, I could have been watching this right. for years. This could have been part of your yes. life. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. I well, loved this movie. <laughs> well, you know? like, I mean, it's, it, this movie is unlike anything, really, when you watch it now or, and watching it now and not having this allegiance to it where I'm like, this is one of my favorite movies. I was able to, I think, really appreciate it more and be surprised by some moments that I had forgotten about. And the turns that this movie takes even now are so bold for a mainstream movie. And I think when I was a kid, this is a movie that played, I grew up in New York. It grew like there was a channel 11, which was like, they played, that's where they the played X. all their movies. Right. Yeah, exactly. That like, I feel like I was watching gung ho enter the draft, not enter the dragon. Um, Barry Gordy's the last dragon, uh, the golden child. There was a lot of like obsession with Asian culture and it was like, and it was, and this was the one that I was like, oh yeah, but I like those other ones that were basically doing the straight down the middle thing. As a kid, I was like, I want to see that. I don't want to see this thing that's kind of subverting it. So I feel like I really got a chance to like, just appreciate it for how insane. I mean, the, the creature with the eye as a tongue is just like, you're like, wait, and this is in the, like, the, and, the and last none act? of it gets explained. Nothing ever gets, no matter how many exposition dumps there are, none of it gets explained to a satisfying degree, which is so delightful. Because we are following, in the movie, the people who are kind of on the outside of the actual story. Like, there's that great alleyway fight that is between the two gangs and the storms arrive. And just as the storms arrive and the, the fight really escalates, 
Jack and Jack and his friend leave, and we follow them away from the action. So we're following people who are not part of the central action, which is fascinating and such an interesting move. There's also that scene when uh, uh, Jack and uh, uh, what's um, uh, Kim Cattrall's character's name? Law, Gracie Law. Gracie Law. When they're finally reunited and he goes like, what? so what's going on here exactly? And she tries to give him a plot synopsis, but kind of shrugs it off. She's like, I don't know. Like, Lopan wants to marry me because I have green eyes. And, and make then she's him... like, eh. She, like, takes the shit off. She's like, whatever. Like, I was kind of into it for a second, and now I'm realizing it sounds silly. Like, that's sort of her vibe. She's similarly kind of a shitty Lois Lane, where yes. she, like, throws herself in the center of this and is like, I need to crack this case, and then ends up becoming, like, part of the problem. And what I love is that she partners up with him. Like, he doesn't fall in love with the green-eyed girl who is coming from overseas. Like, he, the two idiots fall in love. Yes, right. And it's yes. like, it really is. And I love her friend, both, whoever like, that friend is. They're colonizing this movie. Yes. yes. Uh, Kate, right. Kate Burton, the reporter? Uh, yes. Yes, That's yes. Kate Burton. When I realized that was yeah. Kate Burton, oh my that blew God, my mind. I didn't realize that. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, but I loved that, like, they'll do stuff. Like, Gracie Law will be like, oh, Lo Pan, the godfather of Little China. Mr. David <laughs> Lopan. And then Kate Burton goes, you mean the David Lopan that's chairman of National Orient Bank and owns the Wing Long Import Export Trading Company, but who's so reclusive that no one's even laid eyes on this guy in years? Like, like Kate Burton delivers that whole line and, and, and Carpenter puts in shots of like Kim Cattrall rolling her eyes. Right. She's like, they're like over, even they're commenting on the exposition in the movie. But Kate Burton is also like, she's the Wang Chi, where she's actually the one who knows everything. And then Kim Cattrall's yeah. like, yeah, 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 obviously. So shut here's up, what I'm going to do. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, but also the scene with most of the exposition, Jack Burton is on the phone trying to like get insurance yes. for his truck, <laughs> which, you know, like five seconds after. And, and it's like, what are you guys even talking about? Come on. You know, and like that's that's the that's it's the perfect tone. Griffin introduced the show. I'm giving you an opportunity. You got to do it now. Quick. Oh. This is a podcast We're called Blank Check with Griffin oh, and David. I'm Griffin. <laughs> <laughs> I'm David. Ha ha! It's a uh, podcast about filmographies directors who have massive success early on in their career and are given a series of blank checks to make whatever crazy passion products they want. And sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce. Baby, Baby. this is a mini series on the films of John Carpenter. It is called They Podcast. Today we're talking Big Trouble in Little China. I mean, how did you not call it Big Trouble in Little Podcast? Well, uh, my. This was Griff likes to often split pod like and cast. So my and then pitch I think was, he will he'll go far down a road and then right your pitch was I, I said or I big pod wanted, big pod and little cast. That's what I wanted to. Okay, so David was saying, "What if we do big trouble and little podcast?" And I said, "I want big poddle and little casta," which he see, hated. Yeah, you see, I'm I'm on I'm on your page, but I also. Uh, I'm on your page in the want to do that, but I'm on David's side that it was wrong. Right. Like, yeah. that's where I walk. Right. Uh, you're, you're right that probably going, splitting the difference, Big Pod and Little Cast would have worked. Why did you, why did you, why, if you're, so you're not replacing, you're just replacing the, the first half of Trouble with Pod. Correct. That's, that's crazy. They, <laughs> once you're, once you're breaking it down like right. that, I think you're, I think that's insanity. It's sick. It's As sick. someone who has to do openings uh, a lot for How Did This Get Made, uh, and you do a bunch of these episodes, you your brain starts to break and you start to find patterns and different things. We're goodwill hunting over here trying to right. make these uh, these opens work. I, you know, sometimes it just, 
You know, we're on the next level. We're 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 trying to find we're trying to find the juice anymore. It doesn't a, a regular open doesn't give it to us anymore. You guys, you don't you don't get it. The one I really wanted was Podscape from Newcast. I like <laughs> I like the portmanteau words and and Poddle. I mean, it, big trouble. I mean, into here's the thing: they podcast is just it's just it's just literally text. That's what we're doing. I yeah. agree. They po- they podcast. You know, I'm a truthful artist. I, I, I th- tell the truth. I think some people like that. Some people like when there is a message in the title, like when we did Don- Jonathan Demi and it was stop making podcasts. I like that. Sure. Right. Abs- absolutely. Right. And I like it as sweaty as possible. I want I want fucking Satchmo blowing on that horn, dabbing off his forehead. <laughs> um, th- this is our Big Trouble in Little China episode. Our guest today from How Did This Get Made? And most importantly, from the used cars episode of Blank Check, which was the longest episode. Yes. That's what we're here to Alex do. Until Ross Perry broke the record with Halloween. That's what we're here to do. We've got the, t- our, our target is set on a- Alex Ross Perry. Ugh, Halloween, Jesus. damn Halloween episode. Jason Manzoukas and Paul Shear here. Thank you for being on the show again. Hello, Fennel. Wow. Wow. Quite an endorsement. Big Thank shout you, out Jason. to producer Ben. <laughs> that's, for ben that's, that's for Ben. That's for the producer Ben. Hell yeah. We're so excited to be here. Only whenever you do Kurt Russell movies now, please call us. That is the only way we can do this. Um, that's, yes, I will only come in for Kurt Russell movies. It's Kurt and only Kurt. Can I just throw, because I think we're going to be very uh, positive about this movie. And, 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 uh, for, and, and rightly so. Yeah, but it's it, a I, good movie. It is a good movie. I just want to like call out something that I think I was wrestling with, and I wanted to get your take on it as we discuss it because I feel like it's better served at the top than later on. The movie is uneven in the sense of performances, and, and I would say even from scene to scene. Like there are certain moments where I'm like, wow, this feels like somebody's audition sides. And then later on, I'm like, this person feels like a lived-in, fully done character. And then mm-hmm. I'm like, are you... Are we playing into genre here? Sometimes Kim Cattrall feels like she's playing into genre. Sometimes I'm like, I don't know. Like, that's the one, if I was to take, give you like the one big note for me, besides Kurt Russell, who is clean down the middle, uh, like he's getting it. And, and I would actually say Lopan is, uh, he, I mean, I love that guy, uh, James Hong. James right? Hong. Yeah. One of the best. And yeah, um, there are some, there are some uh, you know, uh, people that obviously are not, but that was the, that was the one thing that every now and then made me feel a little bit like, and I could understand that maybe that turned people off because this was not a successful. This, this is films. Th- yeah. No, it was not successful. It's a discombobulating energy, this film, yes. I would say. I think the first time I saw it, I was a teenager and I was pretty baffled by it. I didn't get what it was doing at all. Yeah. And I do think that was a common experience. I was going to say this movie is. I think one of the reasons that I liked it so much is kind of because I found it as an adult and it's one of my favorite kind of movies, which is that it's a shaggy movie. Mm -hmm. It's like, this is like Lebowski. This is like, this is a movie in which the core plot of the movie wasn't meant to include the lead character. The dude, the dude isn't supposed to be inside of the, the kidnapping plot of the big Lebowski. He is there by accident, by mistaken identity, right? And his presence absolutely upends the whole thing. And the same thing is happening here in the sense that, like, this is a martial arts movie that has supernatural elements between warring factions. 
inside of this community that is closed off to the rest of the world, that has all of this mythos and lore and all of this stuff going on. And just because he happened to be delivering meat to the restaurant that day, Jack Burton gets sucked into this and is now our audience surrogate. And it is, it's confusing. By the way, I'm going to, I'm going to argue that it's even worse. Like it's not that he's just delivering meat. It's like he gambled and then he is just being greedy. Like not greedy. He won the bet. Like, but the only reason why he goes forward is because like, it's, it's like the hero's journey by like attachment, right? Because it's like, he's not making a choice to go forward. The only reason why he's going forward with the journey on some level is to maybe get laid with, uh, maybe like that's a part well, of I think he wants control. the first step is he wants the money that, uh, yeah. that, that he's owed. And he's like, all right, I'll bring you to that place. It's the equivalent of Han Solo being like, I'll help you do this, but I better get paid for but it. But I guess you know? like his two, like his, his two steps forward in the hero's journey are for uh, selfish reasons. I need to get paid the money and I like that. And I'm attracted to this girl. There's nothing like I need to save this person ultimately. Well, well, here's the thing that's true. I think about this movie is, Jack Burton is not, there is no call to adventure. No. Right. There is, he is not a chosen one. He's not chosen. He's, he's in fact being told over and over and over again, you are not important in this story and you don't even need to know the specifics. We're not even going to tell you the specifics until later. You're not, you, the restaurant guy, the uncle in the restaurant, the Wang, any of these people are like, don't worry, Jack. Don't worry, Jack. Jack is like constantly being like, what's going on? Who's that guy? What's this? And they're like, hey, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. Don't worry about it. And that kind of shaggy movie. enough energy that no one's saying, go away. Everyone's sort of happy yes. to have him around. He's, he's, <laughs> he's the cheerleader. He's the cheerleader. Like, you know, like he's, he's providing a service that I think, even though everyone in this movie is incredibly capable, incredibly smart, and knows what's going on, they use him just like the opening scene, they use him to accomplish certain things. Like he was the only, uh, you know, Nixon's the only one who could go to China. Jack Burton's the only one who could go to that, uh, that house of, uh, ill repute, you know, like they needed, they needed him as a patsy and he willingly falls into that role. This is my mission thing on this. This is a John Carpenter film. Like Jason said, suggests something darker. It stars Kurt Russell. It's an action movie about a big bicep guy with a gun who fights, you know, elemental warriors. A man explodes in this movie. Oh. There's, you know, insane violence. It's kind of sexy. You know, it's got a complicated a plot called the Lords of Death. I mean, it's yeah. got fucking My, everything. With, with Back to the Future level, Back to the Future two level uh, glasses oh, yeah. going yeah. on. I mean, there it's are really like beautiful. there are like there are there are characters who control the elements. Yes, who are perhaps themselves the elements. There's right. There's scenes in, you know, brothels. There's all kinds of underworld stuff. The big word I would describe for this big word I would use to describe this movie is like cute. This is a really cute, sweet movie, despite everything I just told you. I don't think this would have worked in any other form. Like, and I do think Carpenter's crucial, obviously, but I do think Kurt Russell is so, so crucial to that. Any other, you read, we're going to tell you, like, you read up, oh, they wanted Clint Eastwood. They wanted Jack Nicholson. It would probably be a disaster. Terrible yeah. movie. You know? Yeah. Terrible movie. 
That movie would be racist. That movie would yeah. be racist. Well, we saw <laughs> that movie, El Torino. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> great like, Torino. I mean, Torino. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, it's so true because and and you guys have talked about this on the in other episodes of the Carpenter series, but this this movie is suffused with not just the kind of martial arts Jackie Chan kind of style stuff that is present at the time, but also Howard Hawks like straight up banter right. kind the of screwball, um, screwball yes. comedy. This is a screwball comedy inside of a martial arts movie. And that's what's interesting. Like Gracie Law and Jack Burton are have the rat-a-tat-tat dialogue of like a bogey and Bacall or, you know, or, or any of those kind of screwball comedy of uh, His Girl Friday, you know, yeah. uh, type of stuff. That's what this movie at the heart of it is what's going on. And then all the externals are this wild adventure story. But without that kind of banter at the heart of it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't work at all. And that is, I agree with you, David, that banter is, which, which Kurt Russell has with everybody is cute. That's why I love where you're like, Jack Burton could lift out of this movie, but without Jack Burton, this movie would probably not be very watchable. Like, right. that's pretty crazy to get that balance right. It, it's bizarre. This movie is like six movies in one that fundamentally feel like they shouldn't work. And even when it doesn't work, it works. Like, it works in spite of being an overstuffed mess. It's interesting, Jay, uh, uh, Paul, that you brought up, like, discovering this movie on WPIX. Because that was... Yeah. My my local channel as well, and I felt like the best channel in, in terms of, because it was like a lesser network, they would play more movies, especially on the weekends, because they had less programming. Yeah, I remember like Sunday after dinner, it was Absolutely. the best time to go down and watch movies. Yeah. But I also feel like there'd be like a Sunday afternoon oh, like, yeah, thing yeah. there. I, I mean, I... That's I feel like, like Sunday afternoon, yeah, like that, like going yeah. over someone else's house and like, do you, can I just run down to your basement and watch this TV? Like, I remember right. that distinctly, being on shag carpet. Right. Yeah. WB11. And like you said, this movie made less sense to you as a kid because you were watching it in relation to more earnest, straight faced modern martial arts yeah. movies. I remember discovering this movie in a line, perhaps within the same year as like WB11 Sunday afternoon movie with Total Recall and Robocop. Oh, which wow. like this movie was contextualized for me within those two. Verhoeven movies where I was like, what is this spectrum of things that get made in the 80s that seem to be parodying themselves and have these like bug nuts practical effects, this odd sense of humor, this like weird aggression. Um, th that was where this movie came into focus for me. But I also feel like I discovered it when I was like 15 and I was like, why didn't I see this movie when I was 10? As but you, would you get it as a 10? Total Recall. I don't know. I don't know. In a certain way, this movie feels like a, a little boy just free associating and making up a story as he goes along. Well, it's interesting because Jack never gets hurt. You know what I mean? Like Jack has takes so many hits, has so much like physical injury done to himself and to his truck. But both he and the truck drive away at the end unscathed completely. You know what I mean? Like there's something about he never gets uh, he never really takes any damage. He gets you know, knocked out is... by concrete and he's fine. I... Like, he just wakes up. There, that's the other weird element of this is that, like, yes, this movie He's kind of charmed. Yeah, It's, it's kind of an Alice in Wonderland. Like, on top of it being a martial arts movie, a comedy, a sci-fi, it's a fantasy film. To your point, he's kind of a kid. He's yeah. kind of a kid in a make-believe story. This is... This, make, this reminds me of Axe Cop. It's like, because... 
the story is free associating. Oh, now there's a monster that's this. Now there's like this beast that comes out, you know, the, the beast that's behind the the wall. Like what yeah. they never explained, never never explained beast that yeah. nobody ever has a final showdown with, you know? You it's crazy. But also like the the motivation, like Axe Cop being like, why are you in this? Because I hate bad guys. Right. You know? I am good and these bad guys are bad and I have to stop them. I mean, you were talking about how like the, the you know, refusal of the call thing that is so overused in sort of hero's journey screenplays. And like not only does Jack not have a hero's journey, but he he never refuses a call. He accepts a call that was never placed. Yes. You know, he right. just goes, he's like, right. that phone's for right. me. <laughs> he thinks he's a hero. He thinks that's it. Absolutely. He's not on a hero's journey, but he thinks he is. Because finally, the first Jack Burton movie. I've been waiting forever for this. Uh, it's it's that scene where he's like comes to the lead where they're all they're leading everybody out, and he's like, okay, from here on, it's easy going. It's just some some storage rooms, some office space, a storefront, and then we're out. And then he open. Ready, one, two, three. He opens the door, and there's a million bad guys on the other side. He closes the door slowly, and he goes, okay, we may be trapped. <laughs> and then goes. Then goes, you guys run. They only saw me, (laughs) right? And then, which is such a great dumb thing. And then what I love, and going back to what we started talking about in the beginning, about how he barely affects this movie, they bust through that door. And he essentially runs off camera. And the other guy does the entire fight. And he kind of comes back in like, oh, hey, like everyone, like it's (laughs) like he, (laughs) he leaves the screen, like that to me was the, like, it's so well done in that way that he is, has no part of the battle. But, but, but is never, but is never framed as a coward, is never framed as, you know, in, ineffectual. He's ineffectual in the sense that, like, he runs out of bullets or when he throws his knife, it misses. But he's not, like, hiding. He's no, not, like, right. he's not running away, which is, which is, I coward. think, really important. Yeah, exactly. It's really important that he, he feels as though and acts as though and sounds like he's John Wayne. He's yeah. giving John Wayne level declarations and then undercutting it. Either he or the movie undercuts it instantaneously. You know? that, that you guys might be trapped moment is so crucial because it's like he's his most confident proclamation of him having this under control. He opens the door. He sees them. He doesn't panic. He doesn't scream. They don't cut to a wide eyed close up. He just calmly closes the door, goes through three locks, right? Like yeah. takes his time, takes a breath and then turns around and says, you guys might be trapped. And it's like Bugs Bunny timing where he's like weirdly unaffected by the escalation of danger. Oh, yeah. And, and here's another one. This is this is this was another alt that I thought you could use for the beginning. Please. What's in the flask? Egg? Magic potion? Yeah. Thought so. Good. What do we do? Drink it? Yeah. Yeah. Good, thought so. Good, you thought know, so. Like, That's my right. favorite exchange. Boom. He has Boom. many Boom. incredible exchanges with Egg. Egg is so great, and I, I love that guy. That's oh. Victor Wong, okay. right? Victor uh, Wong. Vic- yes. Victor Wong, I mean, this, who is also yeah. in Prince of Darkness, which he rules in as well. So and good. He, he's, he's, he had three ninjas. Yeah. This movie's full. Al, Al Leung is in this movie just killing it, just oh, like being an absolute monster out there. He's just the best. Who just like just Al Leon kind of, of runs the table on the 80s. He's one of Hans Gruber's henchmen. He's Genghis Khan in Bill and Ted's Excellent Venture. Yeah. He's, he's in, um, he's, and he's also in, um, isn't he in Beverly Hills Cop? Yes, I think he is. Yes. 
he he he's in he's in so much lethal weapon he's lethal, lethal weapon. weapon yes he's the one who that's, he's that's, the one yeah. who who shocks mel okay. yeah mel gibson although apparently he is in uh Beverly Hills Cop 3 oh boy oh, okay. of course oh man that's oh, that one hurts me um uh <laughs> Carter Wong was the guy that I was very excited by in this movie he's the guy who blows up I loved him too he's like what a great uh just a great bad guy in this whole movie. Yeah. Really, really fun. He has an incredible smile. His sort of like, you know, his like sort of evil grin. I was just going to say, if the movie was framed correctly, it would be a movie about Wang. Mm-hmm. You know, right. Wang, whose fiance is kidnapped and he has to go on an adventure. The call to action is, am I going to go and rescue uh, my fiance from these, from Lopan, from the forces of mystical evil, blah, 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 blah. It's Wang's movie, but we don't, we're, we, and he's absolutely as, as, as incapable as Jack Burton is, Wang is excessively capable. He fights the, he fights uh, lightning, he fights thunder, he fights all the bad guys and does so experts. Yes. He's, he's incredibly adept and capable. But what's so funny is because we pivot and are with Jack Burton, the movie just becomes inherently comedic or more comedic than as if it was just an intense martial arts kind of adventure story, you know? But, but another thing it feels impossible that this movie is able to pull off is that that entire Wang movie you described does happen and happens on screen. It's not even like the joke is, oh, it's happening over here and you're not seeing it. True. Yes, you're right. You're right. But it's not, we're, we're given so little access to Wang's interiority. You know Absolutely. what I mean? Like, yeah, I guess I think the other thing that I'm, I don't, I mean, this kind of goes hand in hand with it. I, I, I believe what's so interesting about this movie though, too, is how it avoids all the stereotypes of what was going on in cinema for these types of movies, but yet plays into all the stereotypes of genre, which mm. it's like, it's a very interesting line because, you know, uh, I just, I'm kind of like blown away by that deft hand. And John Carpenter, I never think of him as someone, I think of him as understanding genre really well, but this take on this and playing this out in this way was really interesting because he is, he is giving you everything that he wants. If you took Jack Bauer out, this movie works. If you put Jack Bauer in, it works on a Wait, different level. Jack you know, but Bauer? It, yeah. I would love it if it was Jack Bauer. <laughs> I don't think it works with Jack Bauer. I want to throw Jack out. Bauer would be, yeah. He would. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, this movie probably takes place in 24 hours. I mean, less. I mean, it, yeah, he's, they're out in the morning, it seems like, yeah. <laughs> but, but like, I mean, David, I want you to walk us through the development of this. But you think about just because we're doing this chronologically, right? The thing is like his blank check movie after making all these films that over deliver on a very limited budget. Everyone hates it. America revolts. It's a fucking flop. It's despised by critics. Okay, I'm like back on my heels. What do I do to recover? Right. He, re- he retreats to Christine and Starman, which are more sort of like, uh, you know, one's a Stephen King work. One's, you know. Uh, you know, more family friendly. Those do okay. So he's kind of like right. It's it's a proven franchise in King. It's a teen horror movie. It's supernatural. It's like that's an easier film for him to just kind of get done and put out and turn a little profit. And then Starman is like, look, I'm branching out. I'm going like more emotional, more heartfelt. 
It's barely a genre movie. And then this is the most genre anyone could put into anything. But it's also pre-They Live. It's the first time that he's sort of going overtly comedic, which is a big swing. And the only reason this movie gets made, I think, with this, I don't want to say this little oversight, but with this many chances taken and this many big swings and weird directions is because of this movie being in a bizarre arms race with the golden child, an equally bizarre movie that they were terrified of getting beaten by. Not only did Fox, of course, was Fox living in fear of the golden child, it was was just living in fear of Paramount. Paramount had become this sort of unstoppable juggernaut in the 80s with Eddie Murphy as their number one star. And so they're like, fuck! Eddie's like the last of like the traditional movie star contracts where it was like, you have 10 movies at Paramount and Paramount's like, God damn it, we have a hit every year now. Yeah. And they're like, shit, he's making a movie that's kind of sort of sounds like this movie. Like, and Eddie Murphy's in it. The guy who did just just did 48 hours trading places, Beverly Hills Cop. We're screwed. John, you got to make this thing fast. And we right, we won't really check in like that right. is definitely part of it. And he has for him a big budget, like twenty five million dollars. And yeah, you know, pretty big budget for the time, I guess. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And this is the end of John Stewart as a studio filmmaker for a long time. John basically. Carpenter. You said John, John Carpenter. Stewart? No, John, but John Stewart. Stewart and Jack John Bauer Stewart. together <laughs> right. are one of the best people. God, in the the 2000s. Movie. They're yeah. just alive again. Big Trouble right. in Little Rosewater. Um, <laughs> when I think of John Frankenheimer, I think of a filmmaker who... <laughs> He's a good filmmaker. <laughs> what, what I like about John Bon Jovi's movies the most is that he has such a deft control of tone. Uh, David, talk us through the development of this screenplay because it's so, weird. It's, right. It's credited to Gary Goldman and David Weinstein. As you guys said, it was a Wild West story. It's set in Chinatown in 1899. Uh, he's not a truck driver. He's like a meat delivery man for Chinese workers. Graphic novel or novel novel? It, no, no, no. Just the script. Original this, screenplay. This, like script that was oh. floating around. Okay. It, it's got this weird adapted by credit because the whole screenplay was rewritten and WGA wouldn't give the credit. It's adapted from a different screenplay. It's like a page one rewrite, basically. But it's a Correct. bizarre format of credit that they almost never do. For they don't a... do it that often. Right. And Carpenter complained about it as he did about uh, what's the is it the thing? What? No, uh, Starman. 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 Which, Starman. Which yes. is credited to the original writers and not the guy who actually wrote it. But at least this time, W.D. Richter, the director of Buckaroo Banzai, uh, you know, a, a very interesting guy in his own right. Uh, he rewrites it because at a certain point, it, it, Walter Hill, I think, was going to make it as a Western or whatever. And Walter, that fell Walter apart. Hill, who's one of the most frequently recurring uh, uh, figures on this podcast in this exact section of any episode where you go, Walter Hill almost directed this script. Like, I feel wow. like all the time, Walter Hill is the guy who almost made the thing and made the weirder version of the thing that everyone got Does Walter of. Hill just have too many movies to be put into the bracket? I would, no, I we would like to do Walter Hill. We've, we've talked about Walter it. Hill. We've you have? Okay. It's, it's, yeah. do, it's doable. And it's interesting. Guys, I'm just, I'm just, I'm sorry for one second. I just get my car keys from my wife. Just give me one quick second. I'm so sorry. Sure. Sorry. It's okay. I'm playing checkers on via text message with my friend. During right our episode? What? No, but, no, but. Ben, keep this in. <laughs> okay. By the way, All also, right. David, oh, with, with, checkers? With, by the way, with friends of the show, Shirley Lee. Sorry. Uh, well, okay, so we've gotten addicted to this really janky app in in iMessage where you can play stupid games with each other. 
And we're trying to one-up each other in how bad the game can be, essentially. So I oh, tried I checkers. See. Okay. I I am the absolute worst at staying in regular communication with people, Jason, especially over like digital devices and platforms and stuff. Ben and I were just marveling the other day that for as many different things David is on top of in his life and how thoroughly Mm. well versed he is in what's going on in television, movies, music, literature, all of that. He also at any given time is like upholding 80 different group texts, including like... Yeah, I I don't get that. I'm I'm with you. I'm like that is that's he's on top. That of is it. shocking to me. And playing and, like fifteen and different has a baby. games with friends and has a baby. I have a baby. I do have a baby. She's great. Um, yeah, I love to text. Love to talk to people. Okay. I do too. Like, but but when you have a kid, you have to. That's where you get a lot of your time out. I mean, honestly, sure. truthfully, it, like, I'm I'm doing a lot of. I'm doing a lot of that work, but that's where I'm doing most of my work. I have yeah. to. Can't see Jason, people I think, IRL as much. I think yeah. you and I are linked here. Uh, afraid of the internet, don't want to leave our homes. Correct. You are right on with that, Griff. Speaking of, how, how is, before we get back into it very briefly, how is your health? It is good. Thank you very much for asking. I'm, I'm totally in the clear. The very short version of it is. Did they give you, did they give you your gallbladder to take home? No, my friend Pat called dibs on it. And it turns out now that they do everything, what's it called? Endoscopically or like, yeah, yep. Right. They have to like mush it up before they pull it out. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, the fucking problem was it, the, my surgery got delayed for two additional months because they got really worried that something was wrong with my liver. And so they didn't oh want to put me under because they couldn't run the anesthesia through it. So I was in We're increasing pain. Absolutely. All this is in. I don't know. I don't know, though. I don't know. Keep it at Ben. All right. All right. My surgery, which had already taken two plus months to get to the the date it was supposed to happen, uh, then got canceled because in the blood work they had to do the day before the surgery, they were like, your liver's out of control. We think you might have a serious illness. We can't run anesthesia through your liver, which is where it goes, because then it could cause permanent damage if we put you under for the gallbladder surgery. So I had like two more months of rigmarole and tests and getting sent to different people and whatever before I finally got to see a liver specialist. And she was like, get that thing out of you immediately. I don't know what they're waiting for. I'm going to have you do 20 blood tests to rule out every worst case scenario. And if you don't test positive for any of these, it's worth the risk to get the thing out of your body because we'll get a better sense of what's wrong with your liver. If we go in, we take a biopsy, we do an x-ray, this and that. And what ended up coming, uh, becoming clear a couple of weeks after the surgery was done Gallbladder removal went great. All problems solved. Everyone's wondering, is the liver going to return to normal? And she's like, yeah, liver numbers totally down to normal. It turned out what happened was it took so goddamn long for the gallbladder surgery to happen. Your gallbladder ruptured and started leaking onto your oh, liver. Oh, my God. Oh, wow. So the so longer it was they delayed the it, the yes. worse it got. The worse it looked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, oh, and it was like it was purely like just a weird uh, uh it did not affect function at all. There was no permanent damage. But every time they looked, they were like, your level should be in the 20s and there are thousands. Yeah, we're yeah, going to yeah. push back okay. your surgery another two weeks. I see. Well, I, that's awful. But OK, I'm glad, you're, I'm glad you're on the mend. I am. Uh, I'm in the clear. I'm doing well. Oh, okay, good. so glad to hear it. The, the Walter Hill version of the movie sounds a little more like Shanghai Noon. It was sort of like. Uh, comedic right but it, but the idea is sort of doing like an east meets west kind of thing this sort of like uh set in the past set in like 
frontier era, you know, um, San Francisco. That's the other thing. They were very interested in being somewhat historically accurate, like mapping it onto the development of Chinatown in San Francisco at the beginning and then putting this fantastical uh, mystical stuff in it, but also putting this sort of like, not con artist, but like blowhard meat truck, uh, I I don't know, meat (laughs) wagon delivery guy who like fashions himself as a cowboy. Who rides into town and he's got like, I, I felt like, and I don't know, because I'm, you know, just the little I do know, and I will give shouts to the um, the uh, Action Boys podcast, mm. which is John, uh, past past and future guest John Gabris, um, Ben Rogers, and yeah. uh, Ryan Stanger have a show called Action Boys, and they did an episode on this as well. Um, and so I, I I feel like I've gotten bits and pieces of stuff like that, because I think that's where I originally heard that they wanted it to be a Western but this idea that Kurt Russell is doing all of these Western elements, like a John Wayne vocal cadence, I feel like his um, Baja thing is the equivalent of a Clint Eastwood poncho man with no name. Totally. You know, yes, he's got right, like the, right. the, the, his, the yes, Baja. The, item. That's his poncho. You know, like all of these reference points at the end of the movie, he leaves with saddlebags, like horse right. saddlebags. You know, like that's. His money is in saddlebags, and he climbs into a big rig truck. Like, it's crazy. It's also funny that it's like, okay, let's take this thing that everyone said, like, has interesting ideas in it, but the script is essentially indecipherable. Like, everyone was like, this is insane. It's too dense. There's right. no it entry point. It was very here. dense. Right. right. W.D. Richter, who had just written Buckaroo Banzai, which is a classic of the 80s that, is, that was a huge flop on release, right. is basically like, I needed to do something to get my foot back in the door. No one was going to hire me to direct. Yeah. Can I ask a question? I'm sorry, because I'm, I'm, I'm only on the podcast to derail and make longer. <laughs> Go right ahead. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong. You guys have never done Buckaroo Banzai, right? We have not. No. We have not. No. I have a very important question to ask. Ben, have you seen Buckaroo Banzai? No, I have not. I've never heard of it. Doesn't that feel like a Ben movie? Straight, like a fastball straight down the middle? Absolutely. Ben, you would love Buckaroo Banzai. I've never seen it either. I highly recommend it. It's it's kind of got big trouble in Little China Energy. I guess not surprisingly. It was written by the same guy. Um, I think it's credited to someone, but it's W.D. Richter. Um, How did Peter Peter Weller? Peter Weller Weller is no Kurt Russell. I will say that. No, he's not. I, I mean, there's. I, I think that's a reason why perhaps Buckaroo Banzai remains even more niche than this film because Weller is playing it 100% straight and straight. earnest yeah. versus Russell being able to sort of wink and let the audience in. But Buckaroo Banzai is like this with sci-fi. You know, it's a, it's oh, a similar fun. sort of uh, exercise. It is fascinating that he's like, because his screenwriting career before Buckaroo Banzai was strong, Right then that movie kind of perplexes people. He's in director jail. He's like, I need to make something that gets me back in studio good graces. And he makes something equally weird and unsuccessful, like on a bigger scale. But he does get the job essentially because he reads this script and is like, this should be contemporary. And Fox is like, good. We're glad you agree. Get to work. And John Carpenter had the same take where he was like, I found the script unreadable. 
but it just had a good title and a lot of ideas and W.D. Richter turned it into a movie I wanted to make. You know, Carpenter had had read it years earlier as sort of just a thing floating around. Uh, there's stuff here. I wouldn't know what to do with this. And then Richter's whole thing was like, the buy-in is so big on this movie, it has to start in a world that people recognize. Right, right, right. So and, that you can then uncover the sort of rabbit hole underneath it all. And not only a world you recognize, but a, a contemporary world to such a degree that it's capitalizing on the, the brief popularity of trucker CB movies. True. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like by, by making him a, a trucker, you are really identifying this, this period of like five years where we are obsessed with, you know, uh, um, trucker movies, trucker life, CB radios, all of these kind of things. And that kind of like just puts him squarely in modernity. As, and in that, that intro, you know, they drive around, you know, they, they have a car chase and he's in the big rig. Then he pulls the big rig into the alleyway. It switches to a soundstage. And then the fight happens. Uh, the entirety of the fight in Act One, they are spectators of inside the truck. They don't get involved. They're useless. Yeah. They're not helpful. Yeah. Jack Burton and Wang are literally just sitting in the cab of the truck watching one of the biggest fight scenes in the movie occur around them. They are spectators. And that's what's interesting. And once you're in that alleyway, you're inside the Chinatown uh, or the little China, I guess, version of this world. And contemporary world ceases to exist, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, I think that you get a little bit of a sense of what I like about it, too, is like after that scene, they go back to the independently owned like family Chinese restaurant, right? Which feels, again, like based in the real world. And even like the uh, the the brothel house, like that feels, again, like they're in, they're out. Like, they, like it's there. There's a moment. That, but that's like the entry point of there's something much bigger at play in this world, right? That's our first moment. This is a quote from Richter that speaks exactly to what you're talking about. He said his biggest inspiration was Rosemary's Baby. And he said, like, what that movie does is it presents the foreground story in a familiar context, not San Francisco at the turn of the century, which is going to distance the audience immediately. And then you have some one simple remove, the world underground. So he's basically like, if you set it in a contemporary setting that people will understand, right? Like the, a world that everyone knows, and then you're like, and then there's this supernatural layer beneath it. They can get on board. That's his pitch. Of course, this movie baffled audiences when it came out, but it, he was eventually proven right. I think. I do think. Well, that, I that, think that, but the, the staying power of this movie and the cult status of this movie, and the fact that there's a lot of movies that you have to go back to the '80s. You can go with John Hughes all the way. You know, like big directors where you kind of have that like cringe element like oh well that doesn't age well or that that joke is a little bit like oof even like you know the, these eddie murphy movies that we've talked about there are some things that are like ooh, uh this movie has not only aged well but it really has like this was as enjoyable as if this came out this week like that's how i felt about this because it's it's kind of stuck in a unique time it doesn't feel it doesn't feel of any time oddly enough like you know like it just it feels like it's just like we have all the variables that we need. You know, I, I don't know. That, that's the way I like looking at it. I was like, oh, this is so interesting like that. I, I mean, and like the, the simple sort of visual metaphor of like every elevator they get in is going down, right? It has just like level, you know, that's, that's, that's all you need to understand. Now, here's Did the you thing guys from ever read the article that is, I think it was New York Magazine or maybe it was the New York Times Magazine. This is probably 15 years ago 
about the subterranean marketplace in New York Chinatown. No, that is that that exists? That is a that is like a a gray market area of you know. It, there's the exterior stalls that are selling like knockoff Prada bags or whatever. Mm-hmm. But if you go through the back doors, you go into like a behind the scenes marketplace that exists underneath Chinatown, essentially. And there was a great article when I still lived in New York. So it got to be more than 12 years ago. That was about like them going into this world. And it was fascinating. Wow. I love that. Yeah. I'm Well, I'm going to figure out what that is, but yeah. yeah. Back to big trouble. Lawrence Gordon, president of Fox. Now this is the thing that I feel like he is wrong about, but you want him to be right about is he's saying like, I'd had enough of kiddie movies, right? There were all these films uh, sort of in the back to the future mold that he was like enough. Like I want to stop making movies for children. I want to hire John Carpenter to make a martial arts movie. And he, you know, we'll talk. The craziest thing about this movie is that when it came out of the time, the critical, critical reaction was bad. And so many of the reviews are like, ugh, so many special effects. God, oh. Hollywood's just gone crazy with the special effects. They've forgotten we need characters. All over. The- you watch this movie now and you're like, every special effect feels so loving and beautiful yes. and yes. Like well-crafted. And but now we it, all right? complain about that at the he time. He hated it. He also thought, yes, he thought that legacy effects phoned it in, which is insane. Legacy effects who were... Um, uh, defectors from ILM, which was really like the only visual effects studio of note for a while. Um, then uh, a bunch of people leave that. Uh, or I'm getting this wrong. Was a boss film at the time? It was Richard Edlund. This was the big thing is that uh, when Ghostbusters was made in 1984, ILM was the only company that had the manpower to handle a movie like that, but they were already committed to something else. I'm forgetting. Okay. So they had to, Sony had to start, Columbia, had to start a new special effects company on their own just to make Ghostbusters, which oh, is wow. boss film Richard Edlund. He brings in uh, a bunch of other people. Um, and th- this is then one of their immediate follow-ups to yeah, Ghostbusters. This, Edlund worked on this movie, yes. Absolutely. I, I do think, I think some things were rushed because this movie was rushed. And I think Carpenter complained about that but the the special effects in this movie rule obviously like uh but it's just the same thing with the kitty movie thing it's just funny to think about like how this movie at the time was representing something but in the you know watch it in 2021 and you're like i would kill for hollywood to make a movie like i that. also like, think we in 2021 or we in the last 10 to 15 years have so much more experience knowledge and understanding of the tropes of the martial arts movie that this movie mm. is trading in wire work all this kind of stuff that at the time probably felt like in like the stuff of b movie kind of just martial arts movies you know and that what's it doing here or what's this like this it, 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 I, I can see that this would have been easy to dismiss from a critical standpoint not recognizing that it is in in fact like an incredible story with i think fantastic fight scenes that i'm like that are super original and super that are super fun as fight scenes, but also have jokes inside of them. Also have like original weird special effects inside Story of them, like beats I, and character yeah. moments. Yeah, I, I mean, a thing I find 
fascinating is like it, it, to your point, Jason, uh, uh, Jackie Chan almost played Wang Shi in this, or at least it was it was in uh, conversation. Right, like and he, he couldn't. He his English wasn't good enough to do it. Essentially, he had right? also only done two American films at this point, and both of them bombed. Big That's and, interesting. Uh, the protector. The, the, the protector. Was he in well, Cannibal Run? Yes, yes. Okay, sir. but I that mean, doesn't count. That doesn't really two count. Leading yeah. Two leading roles. Two attempts American to launch vehicles. him. Right. But by the way, Cannonball Run was a, a a a big misfire because they made him do his big stunt scene on a beach, and he couldn't get the lift from the sand, so he didn't even look impressive in that movie. Right. So he has. They give him two bites at the apple in terms of being an American leading man. Neither of them really work, and he goes like, "I shouldn't play this game anymore. I don't like the way they make movies there. I'm going back, uh, doing things my way again." Um, but, but that, for example, is another thing where it's like the frame of reference is perhaps not there. We're sort of 10 years past Bruce Lee at this point, you know, no one has taken over that spot in American cinema. Jackie Chan has not fully crossed over yet. The thing I find fascinating that I made this connection about halfway through the movie is this is such a flop when it comes out and people just go like, what is this? This is indecipherable. What is this tone? The effects, the fantasy, the action, the comedy. All the, is this for kids? Is this for grown-ups? It's too dark for one. It's too silly for the other. This is like three years or less before Ninja Turtles becomes the biggest thing on the fucking planet. Oh, which wow. is sort of riffing on all of the exact same shit with a and similar sort of even more aggro mashup of tones right. in a way. Right, right. But yeah. I, I was fascinated yeah. by trying to get the timeline. But it also, what it has that this doesn't, is like a very declared mythology. Yes. You yes. know what I mean? Like, right. it's like, here's what happened. Here's where the, the magic is. Here's how the magic works. And here we, and now adventures. Go. Well, let me, can I just throw one thing at you to see where you all fall on this? Because mm -hmm. I did some research and I, but I don't, I don't know some of it. Here's what I'll say. When watching this, I was like, you know, they they made these like weird movies at this time. This feels very much like Labyrinth to me mm, yeah um and labyrinth comes out the same year another and also kind of a big flop a big flop and it was like it's so interesting and then you know then i started looking at the movies in of 86 and it's like there were some like crazy swings labyrinth howard the duck also a yep. big flop right so there were these chances the here first in the 80s marvel movie yeah yeah right where where you essentially are people are bucking the trend because at the other the other scope of 86 is stand by me pretty in pink mosquito coast gung-ho like you know it's like top gun you know it's like it's very like so this is kind of i don't want to say like but this feels to me like this weird middle ground where directors are trying to do something interesting but the audience is like no 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 we want like we well, want we're what tipping, we're gonna rebel against yeah well we're yeah we're tipping into like tony scott big spectacle glossy sweaty kind of like gigantic scope movie, you know? And this feels homemade in a lot of very fun, cool ways, I think. But, but that, that sort of Amblin-y vibe, the Chris Columbus stuff, movies as weird as Gremlins and Ghostbusters becoming like so huge. I think that weighs in two years later with all these studios taking big swings with very qualified, proven people. I mean, the three movies you just listed, Paul, are John Carpenter, uh, uh, Jim Henson, and the third one you said was George Lucas. I mean, that's, oh, George Lucas. Yeah, yes. it's Lucas Carpenter and Henson all being like, I guess people like weird movies. We can make right. these weird, semi-comedic, semi-serious, effects-driven films. 
the, the Ninja Trolls timeline, I was just really fascinated by, if I can run through this quick. Please. Is 84 the comic starts, right? And at that time, it is primarily a parody of Frank Miller. Then the cartoon show, this movie comes out in 86. The Ninja Turtles cartoon starts like 88, but really starts 89. And then um, the, the live the action movie. Yeah, the movie's 90. I'm sorry, cartoons 87 starts really in 88. The movie's 90. And it's like they've built up the mythology three steps in that sort of way. But everyone, when those things were fucking pitch went, like, what is it? You're saying so many words. I can't reconcile what you're, what you're telling me. But there was this thing, just the clarity of, as absurd as it sounds, it's four turtles and they get hit with radioactive ooze and they turn into teenagers right. who live underground like pizza martial arts. Like there was just something to that that people got. But it is bizarre that like, you know, when the comic comes out, it's an underground thing for adults. Then they make it a kid show, which everyone thinks is like, how do you do that transition? And it's huge. And then the movie comes out and they go, well, you're making a movie off of a kid's cartoon show. How big is that going to be? It's the biggest independent film of all time. It makes $100 million. It's like huge. It's a massive crossover thing. And that's only four years removed from this movie, which no one can make sense of. Well, you know, but I mean, look, you could also say that two years later, Beetlejuice comes out and is also a big giant hit. That's also weird in another world and a dark world and a thing. And like, it's just, I think at the end of the day, it's a cast that people don't know, Mm. right? It's, it is John, like, and I think that Kurt Russell is a B movie star. Ultimately, like, I think that that's where he kind of lives in this kind of thing. And it's not these big name people. Uh, and so I feel like that's not drawing it over the line. There's like, you're not going to see a Kim Cattrall movie or, and maybe you're not even going to see a Kurt Russell movie ultimately. Um, you know, as part as, but I think like when you see a Michael Keaton movie, you'll see it. And then for Ninja Turtles, if your kids want to go see it, it will become big. Not saying that that means it's I think that kids pitch right at grownups, not at yeah. kids. Yes. Right. Yes. This is not a kid's movie. So it's sort of like you can have more of a success driving right there. Now, why didn't Labyrinth work? Because I think Labyrinth and Dark Crystal are trying to walk that weird line too, where it's like, what is this? I like the Muppets. I like this, but it's not really the thing. I remember being so upset with Willow when I saw, I mean, that's another one in that, you know, yeah. when I saw, you know, yeah. like, huh. all those kind of <clears throat> Tolkien inspired fantasy stories, n- almost none of which work. You know, like very few of those actually made it into something that was whether it's Labyrinth, uh, Willow, um, Neverending Story, Dark Crystal, Legend, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, big flop. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, yeah. uh, Like these are all these all eat shit, you know, and 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 are hugely expensive and and Um, have huge people behind them. And I think but those, I believe, are movies that are primarily geared towards children. Or geared towards a younger audience, let's say, versus this, I feel like I didn't, I remember, because I'm older than all of you guys, so I remember these movies, because all of this stuff happened when I was like 14, 15, 16 years old, right? Mm -hmm. I wasn't like a kid watching these on cable, because when I was younger, other things, like this was never on cable when I was a, a younger kid. So these movies all seemed like either this to me felt like I don't know. That's going to be some horror martial arts movie. I, I don't know. I don't think I'm into that. You know, like I, it didn't seem like one of it was something I was that interested in. In the same way that Ninja Turtles, I was like, that's, I remember the black and white comics because those came out when I was younger. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm not into the kid version of it. Sure. They watered it down. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I was like, oh, no, no, Ninja Turtles. No, thanks. Not for me. Ha ha ha. I'm already watching Jim Jarmusch movies or, or 
whatever cool thing I thought I was doing, you know? Yeah. Um, so, it, you know, there is this, this movie, I think what we're all kind of going around is like, this movie falls through all the cracks. Everything. You know, it, it, it's it's neither fish nor fowl. Like it's it's like stuck in between everything. And Kurt is in such a bizarre place in his career now. I mean, there's this thing where like Carpenter, much in kind the of, same way that Lebowski falls through all of the cracks when yes, it comes out. Another right. another yes. atypical another atypical movie for that direct for those directors um, that is that is shaggy and and kind of ramshackle and and it it it's a failure but i would argue two things with lebowski like one i think raising arizona is just as like shaggy as big lebowski at least and but these are independent movies and i feel like on some level right this is like a but yeah. raising arizona comes out at the beginning lebowski comes out right. after Fargo? That's the oh, thing. Is that right? Fargo. Right, yeah. right, so right. They, have, they are like now Oscar, not they are Oscar caliber creators. They create Fargo and then they give you Lebowski and everybody's like, no, no, no. That's not we, what we want right. from you. Right. right we want you to do another crime. We want you to do a perfect crime or whatever that yes. movie was. That felt, yeah. But I agree with you, Paul. Yeah. Not to disagree with you, Paul. I, I agree. Raising Arizona, very shaggy movie. Absolutely. But I hear what you're saying, though. It's like in the in the. Right. I forgot the Fargo part of it. The Fargo part is like, and this is the problem, I think, and this is obviously the, the brilliance of your podcast, is that now what does brilliance. the audience... Uh, yeah, let's, what not, does, uh, let's not puff them up. <laughs> let's not, like, come on. Let's not get crazy here. But hey, it is. It's like, what, what, does the, what, does the audience, <laughs> what does the audience expect when the audience is introduced to somebody? Yeah, and, it's, and, and that is, yeah, they don't know about the rest. The other thing I'll say about Raising Arizona is it does have a very clear, like, this is a couple who wants a baby. We do get that yeah. emotional thing. Whereas the Big Lebowski is like, the fuck is this movie about? It's about a guy who doesn't want to do anything, but he's, you know, like, it, it, it's a little tougher to sell the Big Lebowski. Yeah. And this movie, yeah, you know, the one thing in the script they retained is there's a 2,000-year-old, like, warlock dude who's trapped and he has to marry a green. That's the only thing W.D. Richter kept. But you don't really know what this... It's like, we got to rescue the girl, but not really. That's not yeah. really like actually a, a goal for much of the movie. I don't, I don't know what, what you say to your friends when you come out of Big Trouble in Little China, I guess. Well, it's it would be very hard to sell. I agree. It's very hard to sell. <clears throat> and I think mostly because there's a line in the movie that I feel like kind of completely synthesizes why this movie is both incredibly special and also incredibly difficult to penetrate or explain or whatever, which it's a real throwaway line. But at one point, uh, Jack Burton says, I'm feeling a little bit like an outsider. And Gracie <laughs> Law and Gracie Law says, you are. And that's it. He's an outsider in the movie's plot, you know, and that's, that's what's interesting about it. That's what gives it its tension and what's interesting about it. But it's also what makes it hard, I think, for, if I had seen it when I was younger or something like that, it makes it hard to kind of <clears throat> access it in a way. You know, I, I think you look at like to look at the Fargo comparison, right? Or the Coen brothers comparison. When you look at the reviews of like Fargo and Miller's crossing and Barton Fink to a lesser degree, cause that one's still heightened, but was so critically well regarded. They all have this tone of like, finally these guys grew up, right? right. There was this attitude of like the early Coen brothers movies, these guys, they got all the tricks and the bells and whistles, and they're technically impressive. What does it service, all mean? Where's right, the heart? Service of right. what? Cartoon hijinks? 
And like Fargo is like the full like anointment of like you get the Oscar. Congratulations. Thank you for making a grown up movie. And they're like, cool. We're making like a stoner Philip Marlowe riff about a rug. And then people go like, how fucking dare you? Whereas I think Carpenter was seen as going into like more and more sort of heightened genre stuff, bleaker and bleaker, right? More and more grotesque and sparing. And then the thing, there's like this revulsion. So then like Christine is like, just do a simple movie. Starman's the only film of his that gets any Oscar nomination, right? And it's like you told a human story. It had feelings. It had emotions. This guy is back on the rails. And then Carpenter getting onto this movie is like, he reads the script earlier. He thinks it's incomprehensible. He's finally starting to win back like his reputation as a pro who can just make a solid movie for a studio with no fuss. He reads the script for Golden Child. They offer it to him. He goes, nah, I don't like it, right? Then they get Eddie Murphy on Golden Child. That thing is off to the races. That's going to be their big movie. Um, Eddie Murphy has passed on Star Trek Four. He's passed on Who Framed Roger Rabbit. He's like passed on all these big movies coming off of the run of 48 Hours Trading Places, Beverly Hills Cop, each one bigger than the last. Whatever his next movie is, is going to be humongous. So, And he's, by the way, a giant Star Trek fan who doesn't understand that Star Trek four, like that would have been the best move for his career. I mean, this is, I'm a big Eddie Murphy guy. Yeah. And it would have been, was the wrong move, right? It was the wrong move. And and it's so bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. It did. It did. And that was, that's the joke of this is that golden child comes out. It makes a shitload of money. People hate it, but it like, I mean, but yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I've never, I've never seen it. I've never seen golden child. It's weird. I want the knife. It's a worse version of this. It's, it's a worse version of this. And it's, there's a really, uh, it, it, the the Eddie Murphy riffing comedy does not gel well with the universe of the film at all. They always feels like one is is overpowering the other. What was the thing you want to get in there, David? I have to tell the Aykroyd story. So Don, John, oh, yes, wow. yes, yes, is going in is attached to Armed and Dangerous, the 1986 film that eventually comes out with John Candy. The movie is going to star John Candy and Dan Aykroyd. Dan Aykroyd, uh. Like uh, he meets him when he's making spies like us. And he's like, I love you, John Carpenter. That's, you know, John Carpenter's like, great. Like, I'm excited to make this movie. And this is, this is quoting, I'm quoting from an interview with John Carpenter. A month passed and Aykroyd began saying strange things like, I'm not sure about Carpenter. Then suddenly he announced, I refuse to work with Carpenter. All of this happened without my having any further conversations with him. John Carpenter had a pay or play contract. So Columbia paid him out to not make the movie. because Aykroyd was being such a pain in the ass and they needed him to be in Ghostbusters 2. And so, like, Carpenter has uh, basically, like, I don't know what happened there. Then Aykroyd leaves Armed and Dangerous. Eugene Levy plays his role. And Carpenter (laughs) basically, in this interview, is like, I hold very few grudges against people in the film industry. After After the battle's over, the smoke clears. I'm usually willing to overlook what happened. But in Dan Aykroyd's case, no way. If I can ever return the favor to him, I certainly will. Dan wow. Aykroyd is like the one man who is like John Carpenter is like, I will motherfuck that guy. Like if I can, like screw him. for What the hell has, have any of you seen Armed and Dangerous? Yes. By the way, my dad, my dad, my dad had a, uh, a thing that he did and I, God bless him, uh, where he would edit out the nudity in certain movies and Armed and Dangerous <laughs> is a PG-13 movie and I believe, I don't even know if there's nudity, but at one point, uh, they're look at John Candy and Eugene Levy are looking through like a peephole at like Meg Ryan in a bra and uh, and underwear and is like, 
trying to like see her, whatever it was. I just know that my dad edited out a little sequence in that scene, that film, so I could enjoy it to its fullness. And uh, I watched Armand Dangerous like about 12, 15 times. That, Dragnet, all those terrible. Uh, but there's never any, there's never any clarity. There is a follow-up quote here that Carpenter uh, in 87 says in an interview, uh, I don't know for an absolute fact what went on, but I have a theory. I believe someone persuaded Aykroyd away from me. I think I know who it was. I think it was someone he was working with at the time, but I'm just guessing it may have been Aykroyd all on his own. Now, someone he was working cocaine. with at the time, he's working on <laughs> Spies Like Us. He's working yes. with cocaine heavily. Cocaine has yeah. EP credit on Spies Like Us. <laughs> yeah. But one, one has to imagine it's not Chevy Chase because Chevy Chase does a movie with Carpenter only like four years later. I was going to say, has, is anybody else in Spies Like Us in, in a Landis. It has to be well, Landis. Thank you. Uh, oh, it's got to be Landis. That's theory. it. Yeah, yeah. That's it has it. to yep. be Landis. I don't know why, but it has to be Landis. Other than Landis being a prick, I don't know what the specific beef would be. I think Carpenter had kind of called him a hack. I mean, remember when we watched that video, yes. Griff, uh, where it's Landis, Carpenter, and Cronenberg. And you could just tell that Cronenberg and Carpenter both don't have any patience for Landis. They're intellectual Landis like, is a clown. Yeah. Right. Especially as like horror filmmakers. Right. Like Landis is not in their kind of league in that way. So yeah, maybe Landis was just like, fuck that guy. Yeah, yeah. He won't get it. He won't be able to do comedy. It whatever. just feels like a very Landis thing for me. I think that's absolutely true. Yes, absolutely. But but it is also a crucial entry in just the Dan Aykroyd chaotic you know, canon. Like Dan Aykroyd, it just, there's a lot of like very chaotic stories about him as a celebrity, I feel like. Uh, anyway, so John Carpenter hates Dan Aykroyd. He comes around to this movie. He loves kung fu movies. Though He says, I'm not a big Bruce Lee fan. I like the guy, but his movies are not that good. He likes the, the epics. He didn't like that. He, he likes more mythology. His favorite thing is a wish movie called Zoo Warriors from the Magic Mountain by Sui Hark, which I've never seen. What he calls it the biggest influence on big trouble so i kind of want to see it now he calls it like chinese star wars uh so like he's not coming to this as like a total kind of you know jobber like he definitely is like i love these kinds of movies and i want to make a john carpenter version of them but the pressure on him is golden child has a release date whether or not fox has thoroughly thought through how well Big Trouble in Little China will do, they know if they're ever going to make it, it has to come out before Golden Child or else it's going to get wildly overshadowed. And the reason they hire... By, by the way, can I say one thing too? That James Hong, James Hong in both movies. Oh, absolutely. Double dipping, coming yeah. out best And Victor Wong in both movies. Both lead actors in the same... Like, I mean, that to me speaks to so many issues, but hilarious that two movies that are competing each other have the same <laughs> core uh, cast. It's like, well, we were looking also that like they also two actors shared from You're the Dragon. Like it's it it speaks yes. to the myopic view of Hollywood that they're like there are five Asian character actors we will cast. But You're the Dragon, right? That was a movie that had just come out. That's the Chimino movie where like at the time you watch that movie now, it is so racist. But even yeah. at the time, people were like, this thing is fucking yeah, this is not like okay, it was right? protested, you know. And so there was a lot of energy around this movie. Uh, people worried that it would have a similarly kind of, you know, whatever offensive vibe. Um, uh, anyway, uh, 
but but the thing is no no fox wants carpenter for this movie because they go like he's proven himself once again as a guy who can play by the rules and deliver the movie and above all else we know that carpenter is comfortable familiar with these sorts of genre things with special effects and works fast that's the big thing they're like because you're gonna get 10 weeks of prep you're gonna get 12 weeks to shoot you're going to get 12, uh, 10 weeks of post. Like, we want this whole movie done in six months. And you're going to record all the music for it, too. Right. You are. Good score. Great <laughs> yeah. score. Great score. Uh, Great but, score. But they're wisely, I think, think concerned. Like, this movie could be a money pit. You got to build all these sets. You got to have right. all these complicated action sequences. Like, this could go over budget. It could run long, you know. Uh, anyway, uh, it's the classic Carpenter thing where he does exactly what you need and more, Right. Yeah. Like he 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 brings it in under budget. He stretches every dollar. The movie comes out and everyone's like, yeah, fuck this. And the golden child eats its lunch right. anyway. Like, you and, know, it and the work. studio's <laughs> like, how dare you? How could you do this to us, Carpenter? <laughs> but by the way, I'll, I'll, yeah. I mean, I guess the only thing that he really won with is the act, the actors, right? Because they didn't want it to be a Kurt Russell movie, right? But then he was able to convince them. And I think they didn't want it to be Kim Cattrall either. But he like, he just kind of got in there and, and just like, I'm going to just keep on saying it until they let me do it. Carpenter said they wanted a rock star. I don't know. Yes. Who? Right. Like, like Cindy I, I, tra- I don't know. Like, yeah, maybe a Cindy Lauper type. Debbie like that Harry? must be it. Yeah. And C- yeah, Carpenter's I clearly like, that. fuck that. You know, I want an actress. Like, get out of here. Like, well, he so wanted he her because he knew she had the comedy chops. But their thing was you talk about this sort of like typecasting that as much as Hollywood still is limited in their view, it I feel like doesn't happen to this degree. Where Kim Cattrall at this point has done... I bet you it was Madonna, by the way. Oh, could be right. Total sense. Makes total Good sense. Good call. Good call. Especially at this point, young Madonna. Like, you know, yeah, young Ma- Madonna. Madonna, yeah. like Madonna feels perfect for this. Thing. Yes. But, but Cattrall at this point has done Mannequin, has done Police Academy, has done Porky's. All three are big hits. And they're like, yeah, but they're big hits in the wrong genre. Those credits don't transfer. Like, they were just like... And people aren't going to see her. Sure, but it's... Yeah, it's like success by association should help her out here. And they're like, no, but those are like body sex comedies. It doesn't matter. We don't want her. And I think Carpenter knew, like, you want someone who could do Ratatat. And also, but she's desperate to get out of that, you know, pigeonholing, right? Like, she's also like, yeah, I want to do this. I will throw myself at this because I don't want to be the Porky's Police Academy girl right. for the rest and, of my career. And their, right. their strategy at first is we need a star who can rival Eddie Murphy. Let's go to Eastwood Nicholson. Carpenter always wants to work with Eastwood. It never happens. And we, you know, we touched That's, on this earlier. That is oil and water to me. Absolutely. That pairing is never oh, going to yeah. work. It, that hard will to never imagine. No, because what he wants is <laughs> he wants the freedom of directing the spaghetti western, uh, you know, Clint Eastwood, which he would ne- not in this time. He's not going to get that. I, I don't think, think the other thing he wants is he wants the sort of like immediate movie star casting where the character development is done the second the guy's on the poster. The audience knows what this guy's thing is, what type of genre it is. Right. You get it. Whereas, like, Kurt Russell, he has to build him out of dirt every time to come up with some new archetype, you know? Well, that's the thing. Russell is, we don't know, really. Right. He is, like, you you put him on the poster and you're not sure. Versus if you see Clint Eastwood on the poster for Big Trouble in Little China, you're like, okay, I'm going to this Clint Eastwood movie. He's going to be the fish out of water in this movie, whatever that is, you know? And I get that. 
it's funny. This is actually kind of a fallow period for Clint Eastwood because he it's like his movies around here are like Tightrope, City Heat, Pale Rider, Heartbreak Ridge, like, and then he does a final Dirty Harry movie. Like he's clearly Eastwood is sort of trying to figure out like he hasn't yet made Unforgiven and Unforgiven in '92. That's him being like, okay, I acknowledge I'm an old guy. You know, I I'm gonna pass into my next sort of phase as an actor. I'll do in the line of fire and movies like that, right? Where I'm the older guy, but he might have almost been gettable at this point, but also like legendary, like tightrope. That's a movie made around. Like he basically ghost directed that movie. Cause he was, I feel like he's kind of a pain. Like he's going to kind of take oh, over yeah. your movie. All those movies. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I was looking, was I texting with you about this, David? One of our many late night texts that, uh, mm. uh, th- the conversations David and I have off mic and over text are just things that happen on the podcast. Like sometimes, People like meet us or hang out with us in person. They just go like, oh, so you guys, it's literally just these conversations all the time. But we were running into how, by and large, for a 30-year period, Clint Eastwood only worked with three other directors if he wasn't directing himself. And almost Mm. all of them were guys who were like his stunt guys or his second unit directors who like graduated and sort of became his Kevin Reynolds, where it's like, this is a guy where Clint doesn't have to take on the full responsibility of directing. But he's also going to direct it a little bit. I don't think he would be able to play backseat to Carpenter. I don't think he would relinquish control. There's nothing in his career that suggests that, that he could really step into another auteur's space and let them use his image, right? You know, like in in a different way. Like, no, no. Once he, once he leaves, once he leaves like those iconic people, once he leaves like Sergio Leone, once he leaves those people, he, he like it's once over. he's doing, once he's directing High Plains Drifter or his movies, it's done. You know, it's like, that's it from then on. Dare I say, and I know that you can combat me with uh, Pink Cadillac or Any Which Way But Loose, but I don't think that Clint Eastwood has much of a sense of humor. And I don't think that he, you know, I don't think that he would be able to even navigate the... No. The genre tightrope no. of this. Yeah. I don't think, they, they, yeah. You're forgetting about that chair bit, though. I mean, that's older. That's when, he, that's when he's got his voice. Yeah. Yeah. It's insane he didn't get SNL that year. Yeah. yeah. The only way you can get away with it is you have him play it straight. The movie is bouncing off of him, right? And that's the, right? He's the guy so who What the hell? It yeah. It's a, yeah. yeah. And I mean, yeah. that's a funny movie, too. But like, Pink Cadillac is a fucking bizarre movie because he's basically playing like Gene Parmesan from <laughs> Arrested Development. Yeah. Because he's like this guy who's like, I'll get your guy. I'm a master of disguise. And then he like puts on a baseball cap. And he's like, see, I'm a janitor now. Like, and you're like, what? Who is this guy? But he plays it so straight. Like, well, it's And City really Heat was something that was supposed to be more of an out and out comedy and was d- developed by Blake Edwards. And then Richard Benjamin takes over at the last second and they make it like 75% more serious. And it's a big fucking flop. I I think like that's the fundamental problem is I think Nicholson could have handled all of the comedy of this movie, but you never would have bought him as a straight hero. No, Eastwood would have sold the hero and he would have fucked up the comedy like Nicholson only works as a parody of a leading man. Yes, there's a version where there's a Harrison Ford play or there's somebody like a a, somebody who kind of exists more in that middle ground who can handle who has a lighter touch. Can I well, can I can I we have to talk about the elephant in the room then, because I guess that the issue is the rock has been attached to the remake of this. Yeah. And and like and and to me, I feel like if we're talking about that. I could see Chris Pratt playing this part very well. 
It's uh, what, what he's doing well. in Guardians. That's right. what he's doing as Star Lord. Yeah. Yeah. Pratt, but Pratt is basically, and that's why Kurt Russell as his father in Guardians Two is perfect casting because Pratt is essentially doing a riff on Kurt Russell from the eighties. And Kurt Russell has said that's why he took Guardians Two. Like he did not see that movie when it came out. They offered him the role. He watched the first one and was like, "Oh, this guy's doing me." And it's a hit now. Like he felt kind of vindicated that it was like they're getting this thing that everyone was weirded out by at the time. And when Pratt doesn't work as well as a movie star, it's when he steps away from the Kurt Russell zone. It's when he becomes serious like he did in Jurassic World, which was not that I didn't buy. I didn't sign up for that. And I'm a big Chris Pratt fan. It's just like I felt like he was misdirected. You're Not that he can't fastball. do it, but yeah, the like yes, yeah. right, yeah. The best moment in Guardians of the Galaxy is when he's, you know, like Star Lord, and they're like, who? And it's exact. It's just a beat from Big Trouble. The yeah. Jack yeah. Burton being like, where they're like, who? What? You know, because like that's the joke where he's all he's all bluff and bluster, and nobody cares, and it's always being undercut by him either getting his ass kicked or him being like just like reduced to looking a fool. And that's what's happening over and over and over again in this movie, delightfully so. I think there is this key to, you talk about the link between Pratt and Russell, right? It is the fact that Pratt was just a comedy guy, right? And like a schlubby comedy guy for so long that when he made the transition to action star, there was not uh, an an ego there, right? There was not that sense of self-preservation of image. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I tried to avoid it. Boo! (laughs) But Russell has the fact that he was fucking 10 years in the Disney trenches plus, right? And that Carpenter's the guy who pulls him out of it. And he is so desperate to play an adult and to be in a grown-up movie that he's willing to be super malleable. And you look at the three Carpenter-Russell protagonists, right? If we discount Elvis, which is its own thing, and you go like uh, uh, Thing, Escape From, and uh, Big Trouble, like they're three very different characters, yeah, different ends of the spectrum. I mean, like the thing he's playing, totally straight, totally serious, but all totally dry. Kurt Russell, all uniquely Kurt Russell, all you Kurt know? Russell, all things other people couldn't do, and all risky in the sense that, like, in the thing, he is pulling back so much of his charisma in a way that I think other movie stars would not surrender, right? In Escape from New York, he's going so self-serious that it goes all the way back around to parody. And in this, he's playing like a fucking dolt. And I don't think, for as much as people talk about, like, well, Nicholson, like, the thing that made him such a great movie star was this lack of vanity. He'll do anything. I don't think you can sell him as the the high-functioning version of Jack Burton or the version of Jack Burton that thinks he's high-functioning. You know, I think he's a little too snide. He's a little too side-eyed or whatever. And then Clint is just going to want to be so straight, so down the middle, or he's going to go too light with it. Like, it'll just be goofy in a, a every which way you can, any which way, but lo- I always get those fucking titles confused sort of way. Any which way, but loose is the first one, right? I yeah. Can't yeah. Remember. And then the other uh, one, yeah. Yeah. Any which way. You can't. Hey. Clint, I, I love the man. I, I got no beef with him. It's just, it, just, it wouldn't have worked. But it, it's, it's, it, what you want is, and I think that speaks to the genre of it. That's the subversive of it. Like, what if Clint Eastwood, this American cinema classic badass, is in a world where he cannot do anything effectively? It's a funny premise. I mean, that's, that's the joke of this movie. But he'd never let he'd himself. Never of course. Right. He, that's right. the thing. Like, he is this totem of masculinity. 
and the American male. And, and, and to undercut that would be impossible. And what's so funny about Kurt Russell's performance is he's doing it as John Wayne. He's, he's, he's undercutting right. arguably like the biggest American male archetype, you know, this, this kind of totem of masculinity from the, from, from the era that he grew up in. And he's using that cadence and that bluff and bluster of, of John Wayne to kind of show you a, a, um, a, a, a loser, you know, a guy who's always losing. He loses every fight. He loses everything he says is immediately undercut. He cannot catch a break, but it doesn't matter. He just keeps moving forward with the bluff and the bluster of that, of the hero of the Western or the whatever, you know? I should read the Trump quote. Richter's do it, yeah. In 2016, is like, he's a lovable loudmouth. I was thinking the other day that he's maybe a likable Donald Trump. You know, if Donald Trump wasn't reprehensible and he didn't happen to become a billionaire because of his father, he might be a fucking truck driver driving pigs into San Francisco. It's not beyond <laughs> my imagination. He'd be unqualified for every challenge thrown in front of him, but he wouldn't get that and he might persevere after out of sheer ignorance and sense of, I can do anything. That's what you're talking about. He's saying this is the sort of lovable version of that kind of dopey American who's like, well, what's the problem here? I'll roll up my sleeves. Like, wow. you know, come on, guys. What's going on? That's great. That's great. Yeah, I love it is. that. It is. It's really funny. The other fascinating thing is that Fox were the ones who wanted Kurt Russell, not Carpenter. Like Carpenter wanted a bigger star. He thought it needed a bigger star to work. I'm sure right. Fox would not have complained. But when those guys turned it down, they were like, what about Kurt Russell? And he was like, I don't think this is what Kurt does. Like, I don't know if that's a wow. good fit. Then they sort of like, he comes around to it, sees a version of it, goes to Kurt. Kurt's like, I don't know if I'm the guy for this. I don't know if this works. Like, neither one was innately into the combination, despite the fact that they were very, very good friends and had worked together well at this point. I think Fox, knowing that this movie is going to cost a fair amount in effects and everything else, sees Kurt Russell as a bargain because they're still viewing him right. as quote-unquote a rising star, which is bizarre when you think about the fact that he has starred in movies for 15 full years at this point, right? Oh, yeah. Like, uh, putting aside his child career, he is the star of Disney movies starting in 1971 with The Barefoot Executive. He has multiple films like that. Then he does Elvis in 79, right? And then we sort of went over this timeline in the used cars episode. We've been going over it here as well. But it's like Elvis 79. Then the 80s are when he's like, I'm a grown up now. 1980, used cars. 1981, escape from New York. Same weekend, 1981, the voice in Fox and the Hound. That's his last relic of the Disney era, right? Then uh, 1982. Well, the, the last thing. the last relic of the Disney era is Walt Disney's dying words being Kurt Russell. Yes. Wait, is that true? That's is true. That true? That is the last that is the last Disney moment of Kurt Russell's life is that it's on Walt Disney the lips yeah. of his frozen head. Well, I mean, yes. arguably, wow. arguably, Jason, I would say it's the last Kurt Russell <laughs> moment of Disney's life. That's actually you're right. right. You're right. But, yeah, but grip, Kurt like, Russell was Silkwood. Disney's, yes. Right. No, well, this, no, that's what I was going to say. Silkwood swing swing shift are like. I'm going to go serious now, right? The thing is blown up in my face a little bit. I want to be a dramatic actor. I'm going to be an, I'm going to be a grown-up man actor, you know. Yes. And the, the the mean season which is a nobody nothing movie, but like, you know, those three things that's him yeah, I want to do serious movies, contemporary movies. I'll right. play a supporting role. I don't care. 
I just want to work with big directors. Uh, you know, obviously Jonathan Demi, um, you know, uh, Mike Nichols. Like, I want to work with big actors, big Oscar. You know, I want to elevate. Yeah. He's with Goldie Hawn now. That's like upped his profile even more. But he's still wait. A guy when who- is Overboard? When in this run? Overboard's eighty-seven. It's right after this. The right next after- movie. Okay, that, after it's right this. after this. Okay, got it. Right. Got it. Okay, cool. But that was a flop on release too. Like yeah. that's the thing. People. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. He's he's never an A-lister because his movies flop all the time, and then five years later, everyone's like. Yeah, the movie kind of rules. Kurt Russell's got great energy, right? Well, that's the thing is, it's it's like he really is he really is appreciated only later because he's making choices that I understand make total sense to him in the moment. And he, I can only imagine he must have just been like, "What the fuck is going on?" Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. What? How, come on, what, look yeah. at what I'm what, like. The, I mean, you look at the thing. You look at this. You look at Overboard. You look at these movies we're talking about, and these are iconic movies by iconic like you just said mike nichols jonathan demi these are these are it is a murderer's row and he just happens to be in all of the movies of theirs that don't hit you know and that's crazy i guess there's a part of me that says like there are and i think we're there is something to be said for like a b actor in the sense that like I would put Gerard Butler in this camp, right? He's like, somebody, owning that lane, right? right and it's like, yes. and there, and 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 give, and there give is me Jerry Butler day and night, a hundred percent. And and I think that there is something where there's a a lack. Like I think that Gerard Butler is doing great stuff in that zone. I think that Liam Neeson can lean into that for all of his things, but he's not as. I don't think Liam Neeson is, is as charismatic as Gerard Butler is. I think that like well, Kurt but Russell's Liam and Neeson sometimes, can then turn around and give you Kinsey. Uh, right. 100%. You know what I mean? Like, right. but Liam yeah. Neeson's a quality actor who will do quality movies in between movies. But yeah, you're saying Liam Neeson's movies are tend to be tightly bound to his one like old action performance. Like he's giving yes. the same right. performance every time. Butler does weird movies. Gerard yes. Butler is giving something to Den of Thieves yes. that is making it a must-watch movie versus versus another just another kind of uh, you know, B movie shoot 'em up. Gerard Butler's he's got doing kind of a Nicholas, a sort of cut rate Nicholas Cage thing, where you're kind of like, oh, that's the choice he's making here. Like, you know, just a little bit. Yeah, I will say not to, not to. I, I say this only because I was up close at it. What I find fascinating about Nicholas Cage in working with him is that man gives a shit. Like, and I and I mean that in a way where it's like nothing that you see on screen, or at least in my experience with him, was phoned in. It was a, a slavish commitment to the words, the character. There was thought behind it. And look, it goes all over the board. But and he's such an interesting guy you guys, in general, too. You, you know, there are those, I don't know if it's Vanity Fair or GQ. One of those magazines does like a, you know, Timeline a, an actor, yeah. an right, actor goes through and talks. Career, okay, right. There's one for Nicolas Cage that's like 20 minutes long. And it goes through every movie from the, you know, the incredible from Moonstruck and the movies that you love adaptation that are incredible cage performances all the way to the, the bonkers bananas ones. But the way he talks about crafting performances is so fascinating and so interesting and so dense and deep for roles that, you know, are straight bananas, you know, (laughs) That, that you're like, Oh, wait a minute. This is what you were thinking about when you were making this movie. And that's, it's so interesting. I guess I rarely get to see him talk 
so thoughtfully and cogently about his craft. Um, and it's great. It's worth tracking down. All I'm saying is I think that there is um, something that happens when a Harrison Ford makes a movie, even if it's a, like, The Fugitive is a great movie. Like, hands down, a great movie. But if Kurt Russell made The Fugitive, I think it would be like, oh, yeah, you know, he's all right. He's like, you know, but there's like, there's a stature, like, with an A-list celebrity doing a, uh, a very simple film. And, and it just never received the right way. There, and I think it was definitely more like this in the 80s, where there were, like, these levels of actors. Like, you are a movie star. You are somebody who is not as big as these like 10 stars that we have. I don't know. Yeah. But you're approved as a leading man. You're not a star. You can't sell it, but you look right on a poster. You're known well, enough. There's like this period where, and what's the, um, what's the Kurt Russell movie where the bad guy is JT Walsh. And it's the same thing. Kurt Breakdown, Russell's wife. Which fucking Breakdown. rules. That movie rules. So that that structurally is the same movie as a Harrison Ford movie. What's the the Har- it's uh, uh, missing, right? Yes. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. Is that what it's called? Yeah, no. yeah. With his wife, the frantic, or presumed innocent, frantic, frantic, frantic. 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 I'm sorry, I'm sorry, yes. sorry. Frantic. Missing's um, Jack Lemon, right? Okay, that. Okay, so 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 anyway, so I mean, like that's but the version is like um, the Kurt Russell J T Walsh version is a pulpy, messy, dark movie. And all the Harrison Ford iterations of those movies are elevated in that way. They have like a patina that that the Kurt Russell movies don't have. I agree with that. I agree with even the trashy um, uh, Harrison Ford movies like Frantic or Presumed Innocent, which are movies I like by and large. They have like an Oscar movie. Well, I mean, like they're, yeah. like they're they're Sidney Lumet. They're they're yeah. I mean, these are like, Pollock like you know and all these yeah guys. yeah. I mean, Ford just plays it so straight. Uh, You know, it's interesting. You think about how close Kurt Russell came to being Han Solo, and it seems like an awesome idea in your mind, but you're like, he might have tipped over the apple. He might have played more in the genre than playing, which is what I think you need. Or more of the there there is a wink to him there, there might have been too much of a wink the too right. much of a wink because here's the thing han Solo. i mean harrison ford's harrison ford's wink harrison ford's wink is hey i'm gonna fuck you and right. kurt russell's wink is like this is all crazy right this is silly <laughs> i don't know right, what i'm which doing is, which like can you this? get a get a load of this nonsense and that's the thing is han solo han solo you have to believe he's gonna fuck you and if it was Kurt Russell, you might be like, oh, no, he's him and the Millennium Falcon. They're just going to blow up. This guy's right. This guy's not capable. Right. You you need to you need to feel like Kim Cattrall. Like you need to feel like Kim Cattrall. Like when he tries to like flirt with her, she's like, get away from me. Like, you right. know, like where is like where where Willie uh, Willie, the, the 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 female character in this in the second Indiana Jones movie. Forget her last name uh, that played uh, by Kid Capshaw. Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, where Willie like looks at him and she's like, I guess you can tell like you like. Like her look at him is, sure you're attractive, but I'm not into you. Whereas like Kim Cattrall's like, you smell like fucking beer. You're not like I'm not like you buy it. Like he looks, and that's what I was saying about the Indiana Jones. Like I feel like there's an element of this character that is very indie in the real world. Like what would right. this guy be who's eating dates with Sala with a monkey around? What would that real guy be? And that's Kurt Russell. The movie version is Indiana Jones. The immediate call out of how bad he smells. It it is funny that like this movie is able to sell that Kurt Russell at his 
absolute hottest could be that easily turned down by women. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. where you're just like, yeah, no, this woman's smart enough to know this is a bad, bad or when, idea. When he, when he kisses her, when they're in like the underwater subway, or not subway, sewer tunnel or whatever yeah. they're in, the water-filled yes. tunnel, and they kiss, and she's like, ew, what are you doing? <laughs> right. She's like, yeah. like, there's no, like, there's no, like, sp- even though they're sparking so much, she's like not into it. And then at the end of the movie, when they're like, aren't you going to kiss her? And he's like, nope. And he just walks out. Yeah, you know, like, I mean, but I that, I love that where he finally tries to have he gets sort of a cool moment where he's like I'm out of here gets into his truck that has like a giant monkey inside of it that's probably gonna like beat him up that's my favorite yeah like they I just love imagining him r- driving away and the beast just comes out and like steals his truck five minutes later that's sort of Jack Burton to me this is another quote from the movie that I feel like kind of perfectly illustrates the Jack Burton character as it exists and how it's different from a lot of the other characters that we're talking about, Harrison Ford characters, all the other characters, even like other Hawks characters, which is Jack Burton at one point goes, I don't get it. And Lopan says, shut up, Mr. Burton. You were not brought upon this world to get it. And that's, <laughs> well so, that's so important. You, you, the main character of the movie, are not deserving of understanding the movie's plot. Yeah, like, that's crazy. I love that. We got to give James Hung a couple minutes. I want to. Incredible. Incredible. This line he has, and this is from recent, a recent interview, like, I think it's from an oral history or something where he's like, I'd been in the industry for 63 years and the first 50, I was doing like 10 feature or TV appearances a year. Like he was just like a character actor who would do anything obviously james hung for reference people is currently 92 years old and still working as much as ever and if you are trying to remember who he is he is he is in the seinfeld episode the chinese restaurant he is the host who is constantly turning them away you might know him from that as well as the other 500 things he's probably he's been. right he's a definitive that guy where you're like oh my god right that guy what so much so that like i said he was in both of the movies in this year i will say that there's a great and i don't know if you'll be able to, ever to find it but uh you know tmz just got him like walking around the grove one day like about like three or four years ago and it was so great he was just, like he was effervescent and just lovely but just like i love that like seeing him like trying to answer questions while casually walking around the Grove was uh, really, uh, what a treat. James Hong, TMZ. <laughs> His whole take is like, I was so ready for this to play both, you know, old man low pan, young low pan, and like fantasy low pan, right? Like, because I had done it all. Like, right. I had been working in this industry for so long, doing every morsel of a role that they would give me. So I can do everything. And like Carpenter was just very much like came in and read and like got the part, like was just brilliant. Like I had not, not a guy I would have ever thought about. And he was, you know, just the obvious choice. He's so, it's not a big role. Like, you know, he has to project so much authority in every single scene, like, and match the humor. Right, he has to work through all these, this makeup and uh, work around all these effects. Like, it's a very technically complicated performance. He has no easy scenes. Uh, James Hong's career is so robust. He has 21 video game credits. Wow. <laughs> Alone. Wow. He, I mean, like, I, 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 love, I love an actor like that who is, uh, you know, who is always working uh, but also in a lot of great stuff. Like, it's not like, you know, he's a, like, you know, it's just like uh, that working actor 
uh, is a great, I don't know. It's, it's, and I get, I get warm when I see him. He's a part of my childhood. Here's a defining characteristic of someone like James Hong though, for me, like Jason, you mentioned for those who don't know, he's the guy in the Chinese food restaurant episode of Seinfeld. Some other actors in his exact position who have already been working in the industry for 40 years and had been in big movies would have gone, why will I take a one-episode guest-starring role in season two of a sitcom that's not a sensation? Season one of which was, like, not watched at all. Right, really. right, right. You know, right. four that's, weird episodes. That is, right. like, the first great episode of that show. He happens to be in the episode where that show finally crystallizes. But a lot of people would have overplayed their hand and made their quote too high or whatever. Like, he's just a guy who just fucking works and does everything. That's the Danny Trejo school yes. of uh, being yes. an actor, which is sort of like uh, Danny was like, uh, I've, I've heard him say it. Uh, if you just tell me when and I'll show up as long as there's no conflict, he is there. And it gives him this like crazy, high, low, insane, you know, body of work. But it, I think in, a, in the grand scheme of things, you don't you don't lose respect for him. And I and I feel like there was a moment where Snoop Dogg fought with that. And it was like, is Snoop Dogg cool? Is he not? And now I feel like Snoop Dogg has like gone to the other side. Like it's like, yeah, fuck it. He does a show with Martha Stewart. Care. He's yeah. in AOL commercials. He was a legitimate rapper. He's making reggae albums now. But there's something about like leaning into it and just being like, I'm going through this wall and 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 people come with him. Like they, there's no disrespect for him anymore but that like you know but uh, it's i think it's hard to do well and also what's most important that you are a fucking professional like james hong is clearly a guy who's like i can't control how any of this shit's gonna turn out i don't know what's gonna help my career or hurt it like you have to imagine he doesn't think that fucking kung fu panda is gonna become one of the defining roles of his career but that like ended up being a huge thing that revived him for like another 10 years yeah. And he just knows, like, you just do your absolute best. You give everything the exact same amount of effort and it shakes out however it shakes out. And he's and, and in each of each of the versions of Lopan that he's playing, he's giving a different, interesting, great performance, you know, there's nuance From, to all of them. Yeah, it, it, all of them are full of unique, funny, fun, cool moments, whether it's seven foot tall, mystical ghost Lopan or like all of the old age makeup in the wheelchair, Lopez. Like there's all of this stuff that he's doing. He's he's makes this element of the movie so like grounded, even though it is deeply fantastical, you know? And can I just maybe talk about one thing that I just Googled? Cause it's like, man, James Hong must have a lot of money. I wonder, you know, what kind of house does he like live in this gigantic palatial estate? The article that just came up when I typed in James Hong house was that, uh, that he bought a condo. For seven hundred thousand dollars, <laughs> a two bedroom condo, and and I'm not and I'm, I'm I'm not saying that like I'm not saying that like he doesn't have enough money to buy a house, but I just almost love that like he's just like yeah I live in this nice he's little a, uh, condo and uh, that's all I need. It's like uh, two bedrooms is all all I need. He has said that the production like he's a, a, an autograph convention guy, obviously having been in so many fucking things, and he says the the stills that people buy the most are Big Trouble Little China more than. All others combined, Blade Runner, combined, like Blade sure. Runner, Seinfeld. He says Balls of Fury is one. Apparently, I have, he's got a I have big ass Balls of Fury. role in that. It's that's yeah, sort he's of, big in that. Right, yeah, right, right. Yeah. Can I just go back to one thing that I brought up earlier? The Rock taking on the Jack oh, Burton yeah. role. Yeah, yeah. So I just want to clarify. They announced that they, you know, have gotten the right seven bucks productions. 
Dwayne Johnson and his ex-wife slash producing partner, Hiram Garcia, get the rights with Fox to do Big Trouble in Little China. And every year or so, uh, in particular when she does interviews more than when he does interviews, it comes up and her answer is always like, look, we're not going to remake it. He's not going to play Jack Burton. We're trying to figure out something in that universe. We haven't found our in yet, but it feels like a universe for him to be in. I think fundamentally, A, I don't know. There's been a run of comics that uh, John Carpenter largely co-wrote and did with Eric Powell of The Goon, who's like a genius. I've heard those comics are good. and They've expanded this mythology. I actually uh, I know they- read the. I read the what? first like yeah volume of the okay. like collection and it picks up basically Wait, the, you're saying that are inside of this story that are Correct. that are big trouble that are in the Jack okay, got Burton it. Go ahead. continuations. Yep. Yes. Got it. Go ahead. Like David was even asking like earlier what, like picturing what happens after it cuts from the the ape being or whatever the beast being at the back of the truck. Yeah. That's where the comic pick up and it's really great. And oh, it dives wow. in a lot to the lore of the universe into uh Burton. They like they do a lot of like cutaways to like his like previous like marriages. It's just gotta like it really expands on the comedy. It's really great. I would recommend it. I feel like I had a great time going through it. I need to read it. I know they also more recently, I mean they've done a couple series now, and more recently they did an old man Jack that was sort of like what if you did a sequel present day with current Kurt Russell? Um, that much time passing. That's, I wonder if Carpenter could be coaxed out of his, whatever this, re- this retirement is to come back and do that. If that would be, if he could cancel one of his tours where he's yeah. playing all of his music hits in order to make a sequel to this movie that is exactly that a sequel with Kurt Russell contemporary going back into this story. I would, that would be electric well this is my big thing as much as we're joking about the fact that the whole point of the movie is that he's not the point of the movie and as interesting as this universe is i do think it's telling that the comics never stray away from jack burton and i don't really have an interest in seeing this movie of any continuation in this universe of kurt russell's not in it and i think fundamentally we know for a fact at this point that Dwayne Johnson is never going to let himself lose this much on screen. And beyond that, even though Kurt Russell got into good shape for this movie, if The Rock walks on screen in a Big Trouble in Little China movie, you know immediately, well, this guy has to be the fuck He's got to win. He's got to win all the, again. Unless he does something that's more akin to The Getaway, or what's that movie with uh, Sean William Scott? The The Rundown. The rundown. He hasn't done something like that in 20 plus years. That's the right. very that's, beginning of his that's career. That's just at the beginning when he will right. do that kind of thing. And that's the thing. But he like, does do Jumanji. I will say Jumanji is in yeah, that's that. That's the closest. Right. Yeah. Super fun. Sort Super of fun. playing on his. Have uh, you, we, yeah. I would, can, uh, I will, I would like to come on the Patreon and do Jumanji 2. Now, do you mean welcome to the jungle or, or the next level? Uh, the the welcome to the jungle the third okay. the okay. the second uh, right uh, rock and Kevin Hart movie that oh, oh movie, no that's the next level that's the next level that's next that's level. next level okay technically Jumanji three sorry right. sorry because we're talking about but, the Jumanji trilogy so yeah. I, I'm right. sorry yes you're right you're right the third one then because yes. that movie yeah. is straight up 
bananas. It's bananas. The one where they keep body swapping and two of the people are Danny DeVito and Danny Glover. And so for a large portion of the movie, The Rock and Kevin Hart are just doing old man voices. It's straight crazy. You get, now we have to do it on Patreon. Now we have to, Griffin. Oh, no, we're, we're opening the game. We're going to take it to the next level. We do, we do the three Jumanjis and Zathura. That's a good little Patreon series. Oh, that's um, not bad. In there. By Why the way, not? that's not bad. I so enjoyed the second one. I just yeah. loved it. And then the third one, I was like, I feel like this is a prank. I feel like they, <laughs> that this is a, I feel like this is like, I almost feel like they, like Kevin Hart and The Rock were doing these old man voices on set and were like, wouldn't it be funny if that's what we did for the next movie? And they were like, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll do it. Uh, all right. Yeah, whatever you want, guys. I also feel like there was an issue with that movie, and this is my hot take, uh, is that I don't think Kevin Hart picked a character in the first movie, and then he went, oh, sorry, in the second movie, and yes. then I think he decided to go really hard in the third movie, because when you watch that movie, Karen Gillan, Jack Black, and The Rock are all doing, I think, Arguably fantastic performances of these yes. kids. Yes. And 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 Kevin, Kevin Hart is doing sort of Kevin. Doing Kevin Hart. Yes. He's exactly. Doing Kevin Hart, right. yeah. Yeah. Which is not, not bad. Which is not bad. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. Oh yeah. But it's it's enjoyable. But it's but not mostly it's not the level. Like, I'm so short. Ah, yeah. You know, like a lot and of that. And counter yeah. to that, I think Hart plays Glover far more successfully and specifically <laughs> than Rock plays DeVito, where he's just Correct. sort of doing generic old man. I want to say after my recent surgery, when they kept me in the hospital and I had morphine surging through my veins and um, was uh, uh, watching the the TV system they had at the, at the hospital, the two movies I watched immediately while like drugged out of my mind were Wild Mountain Time and uh, Jumanji The Next Level. And both of them, I just sat there going, yes, of course, correct. Like they're both movies that make perfect sense. <laughs> this, this, is, this is on my level. Right now, yes. <laughs> yes. When you're literally hooked up to the drip. Um, I, I just think, I think aside from the fact that The Rock perhaps does not let himself lose that much. And The the Rock is, uh, I, I'm sorry, not The Rock, but... Uh, it just the, becomes the a movie about a capable guy who's getting That's the job done. That's my thing. Visually, the second he enters a frame, he is incapable of being low status. Even if he's a little kid in his body. We know this from our love of the Fast and Furious movies. Contractually, The Rock cannot lose a fight. Well, in that in that in that world, I, I believe that like if he's producing that, his yes, own movies, right. but I but I think what we'd have to do is, and this is kind of what we were talking about when you and I, uh, you know, when we did our um, uh, Griff, when we did our Galaxy Quest thing, yes, like you'd have to really, it would have to be meta. And in some way, like he'd really have to commit to being like, it would have to be one of these things. Like, I don't have powers in this world. I am just this other yes. guy. Like, like, and they'd have to figure out some way to comedically make him that because I don't, again, I think it's a hard needle to thread. I think the only person I can think of is Chris Pratt that can really do it. I think Ryan Reynolds could be fun, but he's almost too slick. You need somebody a who's little a little too, bit more yeah. uh, uh, lumpy. Uh, I don't know a better term than that. Like, you know, it's like, but it's, it, it, but if you don't, but it, this movie isn't, this movie is only interesting because, well, not only, this movie is interesting because it subverts white savior and, and they know Rock is not a white savior, but it's like, yeah. 
Here's who I'll take in this part. I'll take Wyatt Russell in this part. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love Wyatt, Wyatt Russell's energy. I'll take I'll take I'll take Lodge 49 era Wyatt yes. Russell. You know, not um Falcon and Winter Soldier Wyatt Russell. You know, like but he gets he gets that same shaggy vibe or you know the um the uh Richard Linkletter movie the name of which I can never remember. Um, uh, everybody wants everybody him. wants him. Thank you. Yes. So Thanks. funny so in that, that movie. Like I'll take that version of it, you know. The rock problem is if he wants to remake or reboot one of the flops of, you know, this time period that then gained a cult following, the one he would fit into really well, which I would also argue is more worthy of a reboot because it is a less successful film creatively. Can I I say what I think you're going to say? Yeah. I I could be wrong. Logan's Run? No, but that's an interesting idea. All right, great. Last Action Hero. Last oh, Last Action, action. Oh, Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Right? Yes. Like the Rock and Last Action Hero, if they announce that tomorrow, I would go money in the fucking bank. That's but, so but smart. But part of that is you need to lean into this guy is unreal, right? There is yes. nothing yes. real world about yes. this right. dude. Looking at this guy is is a cinematic experience. Right. Yes. Right. And I think like you look at uh, Central Intelligence and Jumanji, the two Jumanji movies he did, where both times he's playing lower status in terms of playing insecure people, right? Yes. Like an awkward teen in this insane body. I think he's very good at that. That's probably the mode I think he does best these days. Um, but both of those, he remains so high status just because of his physical power. The joke is, like, this is a kid controlling a robot. It doesn't know what it's doing. It is the Arnold problem. It yes. is the Arnold problem when you put Arnold it's into... It's analog. Uh, unless, it is, unless it is, you know, um, Predator or um, Total Recall or these kind of, like, iconic T Terminator movies. When you put him into uh, Twins and, and kin- kin- Kindergarten Cop and all these other movies... He start. He just. He. It, the tension between yes. his physicality and his 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 accent in this in this in service of what is supposed to be just a regular guy scientist or a regular guy. It makes no sense, and that's where the Rock is right now. He he starts playing that tension too much to the point where it goes from being very funny, very successful to ultimately defanging him in every genre simultaneously. Now, the comedies are less impactful, and he can't go back to action. Well, I guess what I would also say, too, is, you know, where The Rock... I think it'll be interesting to see Black Adam. I'm not the biggest Black Adam fan. Not that I'm not a fan of Black Adam. I just don't know much about Black Adam. I'm curious about that movie, though. But Shazam is the better casting. For for me, seeing The Rock do what The Rock is actually good at, The Rock doing Shazam is interesting to me because it's big meets body and yeah. it was and that and, and and zach zach uh levi great very good in that movie but that to me is a way more fun role as a superhero i agree movie. i agree because i think he has the right he also has the right kind of um his persona uh aligns with shazam you know what but i mean the whole thing and 2003 the rock would have been perfect for shazam 2019 the rock he would have taken over the movie the whole way the shazam works is they kind of snuck it through where i feel like you know it didn't cost that much for a superhero movie and dc was kind of just like yeah you're doing the comedy who cares and like that movie is you know 
funny, profound, kind of actually scary. Like it actually is good for because no one less people have their eyes on it. Yeah. But it's a little bit like these Carpenter movies where, right, they snuck through one way or the other. I just want to run through quickly uh, as we're going through like sort of uh, mythologies of action stars of this era and whatever to recenter back to to Kurt. Right. So we're talking about like the 80s. It's like he's doing all this great work and none of the stuff is as successful or as well regarded at the time as it should be. And he gets into this zone where it's sort of like, well, he's like a movie star, but he can't be the only movie star. You put him in a movie with a bigger movie star and he's a good like secondary name. Right. After this, uh, he does best of times with Robin Williams right before this. Oh, interesting. And then after this, it's overboard. Now he's reteamed with Goldie. They're trying to build a movie from the ground up that fits into their chemistry rather than swing shift that they sort of tried to change midway into more of a romantic comedy. Then he does Tequila Sunrise with oh, Mel Gibson and Michelle Pfeiffer, two people who are bigger movie stars on their own. Uh, then Winter People uh, oh, with what's uh, that? Kelly McGillis. Uh, in 1930s Appalachia, a widowed city clockmaker falls in love with an unwed mother and finds himself in the middle of a longstanding feud between two clans. <laughs> that is how he that, closes that one out. Didn't, no, didn't go. Yeah, no, that wasn't a hit. Uh, now, now like his that next but, yeah. movie, his next movie is arguably his first down the middle hit, which is yeah. Tango and Cash. Tango and Cash with Stallone. And he's riding Stallone's back, but that's the first time he has something that actually plays as a hit when it came out. And he's sort of, you know, playing the wild man to Stallone, straight man, the bigger star there. Then after that, it's backdraft. He's top bill, but the movie's got so many people in the right. cast. The f- he's the f- playing and that the straight. fire is really top. The fire, but the that star. movie was a hit. That movie That's was a hit. hit. You know, That's a hit. Yeah. But then right. it's, you know, Unlawful Entry and Captain Ron, which don't hit. Uh, Tombstone. Did Tombstone, I mean, obviously Tombstone rules. I guess Tombstone did pretty well. It did pretty well. It did do like amazing. Bigger. Right. And also I think Tombstone benefited him from the kind of word of mouth that he was the, he really directed it. You know, yeah. like that, the story, the behind the scenes story of Tombstone, you know, it was his movie. He kind of shadow directed it, all that kind of stuff. I mean, I will, I will say that Tombstone to me is like one of my, is a, is one of my favorites. It's such yeah. a great, it's such a great Western. It's so good. But I, I remember it being big. So I guess it wasn't. But I mean, I remember it being big. And it was big. Yeah, because it, it was, was big. It wasn't was the flop. It was big. It was big, but it, Wyatt Earp was the flop. But what was interesting was I feel like the person who popped out of Tombstone was Kilmer. unquestionably Val Kilmer. Yeah, um, absolutely. And just oh, yes. to, for a brief moment, I will say the Val Kilmer documentary, if people have not watched it yet, is absolutely incredible. Um, it's just called Val. Uh, I don't, I think it's on Amazon prime or I don't remember where it is, but it's on one of the streaming services. It is fantastic. And subsequently I watched it and then rewatched top gun MacGruber, real genius heat. Like, do you just watch his filmography tombstone? I watched earlier in the pandemic and it's, he's uh, just an incredible actor. His, this, what he, what Kilmer can do. I would like a Val Kilmer miniseries. <laughs> Yeah. David, you would not have to sell David hard on that. Yeah. I love Val Kilmer so much. I'm a big, you know, it's interesting. I need to watch. Oh, I'm shocked that you haven't watched the documentary. It's almost as if having a child is distracting you from your job. Yeah, some stupid excuse like that. How dare. Griff, I feel like your overall point about Kurt is his biggest hits are usually where he's tying together with something else, right? Like Tango and Cash, Stargate. 
Absolutely. Well, the other thing, this is this is the other point I sort of want to make is like, uh, by the time you get into the 90s, the 80s Carpenter movies have sort of been reclaimed. He's a bigger star because the movies that flopped the first time around have now sort of elevated him to mild icon status. And he's not quite elder statesman, but you get something like Stargate where he's more just kind of plugged into that, right? Like executive decision. Breakdown is great. But at this point, he's not doing the Kurt Russell Carpenter thing. He's not doing the wink. He doesn't have the mischievous energy. He's playing very well in largely good movies, pretty straight down the middle. And Escape from L.A. happens in that period. And that one's a flop. Like, that's the one that sort of blows up in his face. And I will say that Executive Decision, I think, is a very underrated, good action movie. And uh, and Steven Seagal, one of his best performances, because it's a great a twist. And there's so much good stuff there. Uh, that one, I feel like, is his closest to being. I mean, I think Backdraft and that are his, like, that really is his Harrison. Those are his Harrison Ford swings. Right. But they, but he's, what's interesting is, like, he never achieves leading man status. He really is at the top end of character actor status. Yeah. I, I think, you know, like, he's always, he's, or or he's a leading man, but in, b-movie versions of the he's in the movies that i feel like harrison ford and michael douglas are turning down right and he's playing back up to a bigger star he should have been in black rain black rain would have been funny another fish out of water in i mean that that movie is actually yeah. uh set in um japan japan right? like exactly yeah but, but, yes but, it is but you know but uh, yeah but anyway uh that movie's Hmm. Yeah, we'll do Ridley. Scott I, wa- I watched. I wa- you'll do when you do Ridley Scott. That movie is. I watched that movie like three months ago. It's nuts. I want to do. I want to do a Patreon of Black Rain and uh, what's the other Rising Sun, the Wesley Snipes, uh, uh, sure. Sean Connery. Which is that that one right? And that one in Year of the Dragon. If you really just want to do like mid eighties, uh, well, that's early nineties, but Hollywood movies that are straight up afraid of Asia, just yeah. like afraid. The Jared Leto Netflix one. That's maybe the fourth in the series. Uh, the Outsider is the name of that movie. Oh, yes. I didn't. That even one know what didn't that really is. go anywhere. Yes, uh, that was yeah, yeah, yeah. It's similar vibes. Similar vibes. Yes, he really is. He is a sing. It really. You, you mentioned Pratt, or we can probably come up with a couple others. But Kurt Russell, really, especially this iteration of Kurt Russell, is such a unique Hollywood voice yes. that really doesn't exist that much. You can say that Jeff Bridges can do it sometimes. Yeah. You know, um, there are people who can access it, but very few people are, is it their kind of, their, their, their most kind of realized voice. And Kurt Russell is that. Kurt Russell's the only person who can, in a serious movie, make you laugh and, and have a, a sly wink going on while, while not, not w- without letting the tension out of the movie without letting the foot off the gas. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I think what I'm realizing in this conversation ultimately is we are, we have been spent such a long time, not we in this podcast, but in general in cinema looking for the next Harrison Ford. Mm. And I think that that's a misnomer. I think we're looking for the next Kurt Russell because our movies now are blend. Like I think we give a lot to Harrison Ford to say, well, he could be charming and he could be funny and he's an action star. But in many ways, what happens is like, well, we're having like the reboot of Tron and we, we went through all these male actors. It's like, who's the next one? Who's, and it was just like, no, no, 
No. And then when Chris Headland, Pratt comes Hunnam, in. Right. All these guys. Yeah. Yeah. We come in and we go, that's what we want. And what we wanted. And maybe what I, what I think we're saying is like, Kurt Russell is what we, what is needed now. Harrison Ford was like back then. And we like, and that, cause I do feel like that was a search that we were really looking for. And I think that what's his face, the guy who plays Thor, Chris Hemsworth also even travels a little bit in this world of. Right. He, he turns pull- out to be a secret Kurt. Yeah. Yeah. We thought he was a Lundgren, but he's a secret Kurt. He definitely has some of that energy, which is, a bl- which is very fun and makes him yes. interesting. And I think, I think we're also getting to see some of that from people like Chris Pine or other people yes. who pre- previous to this have been stuck inside of very rigid structures about what is, what is, what is a, uh, what, what is a leading man's kind of. Uh, voice, you know. By the way, are... I did. I did. Um, it's a movie where they hire a best man. I think Josh Gad and Kevin Hart. Oh did yeah. It. Oh, the um, wedding yeah. ringer. The wedding ringer. I did that when it was Chris Pine's pet project that he was. I did a table huh. read for that. I did. A, Chris I was Pine, at that table read. Okay, yeah. So Chris Pine was trying to be that guy, like, the, like, but that was his. Well, Chris Pine's a phenomenal actor. I've seen him on stage. Yes, I've seen yeah, the best. But like, I just love that. Like he was like, oh, I want to, I, I want to like scratch this Vince Vaughn itch. I can do this, and he was very, very capable in that role. Like he, like he could do that. It's just like, and, but, and yeah. him in fucking Into the Woods. Yeah, that's a great um, Paul Vince. A young Vince Vaughn was trafficking in Kurt Russell esque vibes. Yeah, I think you know when we well, meet Vince Vaughn, I think you don't think so, Griff. No, no, I was going to say, our buddy Connor Ratliff always talks about this, that, like, he thinks the single biggest issue with Phantom Menace is that Vince Vaughn isn't in it. And he uses Vince Vaughn as a stand-in. But he's like, that's the guy who would have given you, in 1999, the energy that Harrison Ford was giving you in 1977 and would have been able to, like, be in the movie just enough, but also sort of say to the audience, like, let's not take this too seriously. The person that I'm always like, whenever I watch a movie that I'm like, ooh, this was so almost good, but I think it was casting. Um, the person that I always say, I think it would have been better if per- this person was in that role is always Sam Rockwell. Oh, interesting. Oh, interesting. Yeah. See, my my take on that, I always go to Oscar Isaac because Oscar Isaac's a guy who like has the heft, but I also think is always funny. And can play. And that's how I feel about funny. Rockwell. Right. I yes. feel like Rockwell has a light touch, but is such a good dramatic actor. But he can sell. He can, I would watch Sam Rockwell try and fail and enjoy it so much the way that I enjoy Kurt Russell trying and failing. Well, I think that Sam Rockwell is able to really like. He has a real cocksureness to his characters, and I think I think that he has like he he is like the acting version of bill murray like he's got that looseness but mm. i think it is very studied and that, that's not an insult i think that he really works these characters where bill murray is that guy i don't know if sam rockwell is that guy but he can become that guy and that's really interesting i, I yeah you know what's weird i guess he did the fossey show but sam yeah. rockwell mm-hmm. won an oscar yeah and yeah. since then i feel like he's like, where is Sam Rockwell? What, he I want received more... another Oscar nomination for playing George W. Bush for four minutes. You're forgetting about that. I know. I'm not forgetting about that. And I liked him in Jojo Rabbit. I think you're right. It's those few supporting parts. It's it's Fosse Verdon. And Richard then it's Jewel. COVID shuts right. everything down. 
You know, um, like, I, yeah. I know that he, I know that him and Ben Schwartz are going to do a movie together. Right, right, right. It's wild that I have not gotten the like sort of like, hey, Sam Rockwell, you want an Oscar? Is there a movie you really want to fucking make? You know, like at least one sure. of those yet. But but but, anyway, but it is all. weird yeah. that like the following year he gets another supporting actor nomination, and the year after that he is one of the flashy supporting roles in a Best Picture nominee. He's in Jojo Rabbit. And then that same year, he's in Richard Jewell, which he fucking rules in. He, uh, well, the, I was about, uh, he's great in Richard Jewell, but, and I don't really like Jojo Rabbit, but I think he's actually really funny I agree. in Jojo Rabbit. He's, yeah. he's great. He's great in everything. He's always good. Even in movies that are not good or unsuccessful or whatever, he is always great. He's always You great. know what I want? Like, I want Sam Rockwell in a Shane Black movie. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I want I want Sam Rockwell and this is this is like no shade to either of the leads of um of the nice guys. But like I want Sam Rockwell in that movie. You know what yeah. I mean? Like I want that again, he's shaggier than Ryan Gosling is. You know, like he's more inept. He doesn't feel capable but while still feeling like he belongs there. Like in what's the Ridley Scott movie that he's in with uh, or uh with um Oh, Bastic Man, which Bastic is so Man. good. Good movie. Great, great movie. Great Sam Rock going toe to toe with Nicolas Cage. It's great. I was just going to say very briefly that, uh, you know, people were predicting that you guys were going to come on this miniseries at some point, right? Our Reddit likes to blow up the second miniseries is announced and try to game where they think past guests or people they've seen us interacting with on Twitter would fit in. And everyone was so sort that, of going I guess like, that counts as real nerdy stuff. Oh, real nerdy shit. But I, I, they were all trying to math out like, well, the used cars episode, the reason that worked is it becomes two hours of them talking about the state of comedy movies. What Carpenter movie has the same potential for them to go off on a similar state of the industry diatribe? And, and they were like, I don't know. None of them really fit. What would it be? You guys just want to do Big Trouble. We were happy to acquiesce. And then you come on and suddenly we've now started deconstructing the entire last 50 years of the American <laughs> leading man. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's really true because, like, we are in a period without movie stars and without yeah. leading men. We have now had two generations of no leading men, really. You know, like, the, the, maybe you could argue, uh, I feel like, David, your, your favorite, Adam Driver, is, like, the leading man of right now. And I love Adam Driver. No, All I no want to do is talk about Annette. Oh, my God. Annette, Annette is... Annette is the cr uh, like Annette gave me a panic attack. I was, yeah, me too. I me am, too. Like, me too. I'm, That's like, how I'm I felt like trying to convince them. Amy to do a special unspool. I'm like, I just need to talk about it for two hours. Holy shit, that movie was so crazy and really captured what it is to be a comedian. Anyway, yeah. um, I, yeah. <laughs> what, what, what were you gonna say, Paul? No, I don't know. I don't even know. All, all I say, I, I like Adam Driver. I think that what we're finding is back to this thing. Not to reiterate my own point. I think that what we want in a leading man or what we want in a leading man now is a vulnerability and yeah. an openness. And I would even argue that, yes, The Rock is a big hulking mass, but the fact that he could tone himself down for Jumanji, do these other things, shows that even our leading men at this point have to be a little bit more vulnerable. And I know we've done that before with like Schwarzenegger and even Stallone. They've had their one-offs. But I do believe now like the best leading man has to be able to do it all and a little bit make fun of themselves. But I think that that's, that's what Kurt Russell's bread and butter was. And I think back then in the eighties, that was not what people 
wanted or is there some no, version and of I, this? I agree yeah. with you guys that everyone doesn't know what to make of it at the time. And then he really does become the model that everyone's trying to fulfill, even if they like to say we're looking for Tom Hanks, Tom Cruise, Harrison Ford. Like they cite the yes. guys who were running the table in the box office at the time. But Russell is sort of the platonic ideal. I would say even just in terms of what types of movies get made now, the attitude and the energy of our biggest blockbuster films, the Marvel movies all have this sort of Kurt Russell tone to them where they need that deafness, that lightness of touch, right? The ones that people right. like the most. The that ones that work. Age the best, right. It's Downey Jr., it's Chris Pratt, it's Hemsworth when he starts getting funny. You know, that's it's, when people And it's start really, to go, if like, you look at it, if you look at it, it's, it's not just Downey Jr., it's Downey Jr. with Shane Black, because yep. Shane Black has an uncredited rewrite on Iron Man 1 and right. does Iron Man 3, and then you've right. got Taika, and then you've got Gunn. Right. And, and those and two guys as are- as well is a shaggy dog comedy guy who's throwing mm -hmm. things sure. off yes. the hump. Yeah. Totally. But the rest of the Marvel movies don't have that exact, in our, and the, the DC movies are, are lacking in any sense of humor or any sense of- yeah shagginess they are dour and as we you guys came on our show and talked about the snyder cut like it is they are so gray and lifeless to me in a way that right now what we want is there to be a a, a, a we don't have movies right now or big movies i guess that have fallible people in them like vin diesel and the rock can't lose a fight in fast and furious movies and so we have movies in which Everybody is essentially invincible to both emotional and impervious to physical harm, which is it, very it, bizarre. It's a two-pronged problem of, I think, so many of these stars being unwilling to lose any status and the executives thinking what people want to see is people who are fucking awesome, winning at everything all the time. And you get these movies that are just two and a half hours of guitar solo. You know, with like yes. no melody. Well, but I would also argue that this is also what some of our greats have transformed into. And I say greats by saying like Robert Downey Jr. I don't think plays that anymore and won't play that anymore. I think Vince Vaughn won't play that anymore. I think and like all of a sudden people don't want to play the thing. I was going to say, I absolutely agree with you, Paul. A hundred percent. Both of those are people that are in their mid fifties to early sixties, mm. right? I agree. That yes, generation. Yes, yes. What I'm saying is, who are the, where are the thirty five year old versions of that? And that's where we have this huge problem where we're continuing to talk about we, a group of people in our. I mean, I'm the oldest at forty eight, and the rest of you are late thirties, forties, right? Is my assumption. Um, except for twenty five. I mean, twenty five. But that's cool. Yeah. But yeah. So the, rea the reality is it's so hard to point to anybody in the younger generation, even our contemporary generation, that has Ryan the Reynolds. capability. It's, I guess it's, it is. It's Ryan Reynolds. But even he's, he, he's the one who's figured even out the he is anybody. approaching 50. Yeah. And, and it took so long for him to crack it, like two swings. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. The other thing that is frustrating about him is what he's figured out is he has really figured out how to sell a movie online mm -hmm. in a yeah. way that I find kind of like headachey and depressing. But then I watch how he gets a movie like Free Guy where I was like, oh, no one's interested in this. Like you can barely, you know, explain the plot. Like who cares? Gets that movie over the sort of box office hump in a pandemic. And I was kind of like, I kind of have to hand it to his insane 
kind of workaholic online presence, right? Where he's just like, guys, guys, you got to come. You got to, you know, like his super enthusiasm kind of sold everyone on that movie. But it's also it, the way he cracked the code is that everything's become Deadpool. Like not yes. only has he reverse engineered yeah. how he works in other movies around Deadpool, but the marketing feels like it's written by Deadpool. Everything, yeah, everything feels like it's a dead. It's an extension of Deadpool, right? It's like, a it, like the, he he is the Deadpool extended universe. Right, I think right. that the, I think that somebody tried to crack it a little bit with uh, the let's just call it the horrible boss triple head, right? Mm-hmm. Bateman, Charlie Day, and Sudeikis, right? Like at that point, I think that that was the attempt to be like, these are the guys, these are our new guys, these are our new people. But immediately, it, like even Charlie Day has like, was in uh, the big Pacific Rim. It's like, I feel like it's weird because you almost have to have enough sway to control the whole movie around you. It's not enough to be even be in it anymore. You have to like, you have to almost steer the ship, which is I think the reason why Vince Vaughn even came into the play because of Swingers. It's like, they had enough control there I don't know. Am, am I making sense? I don't, maybe I'm. No, maybe no, I'm no, talking. No. Am I, yeah. I. I don't. I, yeah, because even you look at early Bill Murray when it's like people like Reitman being like, just show up and do your thing. You know. Yeah. Like the, the things that make comedy stars are movies where the stakes are low enough, and you have a director who really understands and trusts the person and gives them space to figure the thing out. Beverly Hills Cop. I mean, all your Eddie Murphy movies at the beginning of his career were like that too, where it was like we're hiring you to do your thing. And we're going to take the pressure off of you and just give you the circumstances to shine. I think the really the only person who is, I think, currently exists inside of this space, but is now also getting older is Seth Rogen. You know, like, oh, I think, my God, of course. I think yeah, yeah, Rogen, yeah. Rogen is Rogen is in a position to write and direct and also to write and direct movies that that he is in. He also is in a position to make to make and produce other other stuff that like whether it's the boys or whether it's uh sausage party or you know he's he's got his fingers in stuff that is very interesting very current and feels very relevant uh and is one of the only comedic voices that i understand currently what his point of view is yes you know and and that that is like i don't know what anybody else's point of view is comedically other than just you know, uh, this movie, you know, but, but also, like, yes, but he's become a little bit more of a mogul than a movie star in a way that's impressive. And I do think there's a point of view that's consistent. He has quality control and whatever. But you look at like Neighbors to 2016, then he arguably doesn't do another like Seth Rogen vehicle until Long Shot 2019. And then American Pickle goes to HBO Max and sort of falls into the pandemic memory hole. And he's got tons of credits in between all of those things, but they're either like him doing extended cameos or voiceover roles or TV stuff that he's producing. But here's right. the thing. Maybe maybe we're getting off track because I, I may have pulled us in the wrong direction. Oh, wait, saying, what? Like, Are we? Wait, you're <laughs> kidding me. Yeah, I get here. You know what? I think the difference is this. <laughs> Seth Rogen is a leading man, but yeah. he's not an action star. And I think that that and that's no. and that is the subtle kind of Give difference. Like. Give it time. Uh, but by, but, look, but you know what I'm saying? Like he like he did Green Hornet. But I think where Seth. Seth is is putting out like Eddie Murphy, and this is somebody we haven't talked about. Is the perfect mix of this guy who is yeah. also very funny, very likable. You buy him as being sexy. You buy him as being like he kind of walks this different line where he could kind of go all over the map more than most of other people. 
that was in an era where action stars didn't actually need to be able to like clear a room with like brute force. Right. Where action scenes could be a little smaller, a little goofier, where bodies didn't have to be quite as sort of imposed. You know what I mean? Like, and now I feel like it's harder. Like Seth Rogen doing the Green Hornet is kind of him trying to find like, how do I do an action movie? Right. Like, and that movie wasn't even a flop. Like, you know, it's a, it's a decent movie. But his takeaway yeah. from that was we had an idea of what we wanted to do. When your movie goes over a certain budget level, the amount of people who have to weigh in and every single decision becomes such a headache. We lost control that after that, I mean, he, he said as much directly in interviews. After that, every time we come up with a movie, we go to the studio and we go, what is the number, the budget number that if we keep it under that, you'll let us do whatever we want. And for yeah, every right. one of his movies, he's like, if I can deliver neighbors at $26 million and we all defer our salaries, can we get no notes? You know, this yeah. is the end is a movie with set pieces and effects, but they figure out how to keep that under a certain budget level. Like, that's the thing he does now is I would rather defer my payday and have more control of the thing in the moment rather than having to level up to the bigger thing where I then have to politic around all these people. And what an incredible thing to figure out at that early stage to be able to pivot and then just from then till now yeah. grow exponentially. Right, because he was like, I have no interest in trying to do Green Hornet ever again. And if I need to be in a bigger movie, I will take the offer to be Pumbaa and Lion King. And, you know? and, while, not, and while not all of his movies have been absolute hits, he's never had another Green Hornet. No. You know what I mean? Like, he's he's really, like, had a run of good to great movies that have been under his control to a degree, to some degree or another. Yeah. And these are some of what I think of as the best comedies of the last 15 years, you know? I think he, I think that he is behind a lot of great comedy. I think one of the things that is really interesting about Seth and Evan as a, a duo, and again, this is getting further away, but they also <laughs> are doing, they also do something really interesting, which is like, they are really good directors who elevate some simpler comedic, like I think in the past we've seen very simple comedy, like as far as directing is gone, you know, like, and I think that like when they actually, they actually, I mean, they directed the pilot for black Monday. It looked phenomenal. I mean, they've also directed a lot of other stuff too, but they really elevate, they're doing a lot of stuff, but I do think in comedy, yes, there's a bunch of people in comedy, but who is that person that can do comedy and be a leading man in the sense of a sex symbol, which I think Kurt Russell kind of is i think when you think about kurt russell you don't go comedian i think you think of him as uh he's a he's a leading he's a leading man in, in a different way like a i don't know i mean i know it's a subtle well, it's difference almost like it's almost like and this person i think is not this but if zach efron had that yes. kind of that swagger and that wink which he, he 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 doesn't have he can do what he does and he does it very well i think but he doesn't have that Kurt Russell other gear. I mean, you know? the, the um, Kurt thing to get things slightly back on track is that he's able to do both simultaneously in equal measure without sacrificing one to the other. Like, that's the thing that I feel like so few guys have pulled off and someone like Pratt pulls it off and then doesn't always recognize what the right application of that is. Seems Again, to less and less, I would say. Right. But, I mean, but who like, knows? The Kurt thing where he's just kind of equally good at everything but he never becomes a joke, but he lands every joke. You know, it, it, it's yeah, yeah. It's, it's and a he's tough never balance. quite a com a comedian, but no. he's a 
comedy but star. But he can sell a joke. But yeah. he can sell a joke. You know, he understands yeah. what's, what the joke is and can sell it. And you would be very hard pressed, I think. I wrote it down every time in this movie in my notes. He does not win a single fight until no. the very end when he catches the knife and throws it at Lopan. Or like when, he, when they burst through and they have the first sh- shootout and you can, and he's wild firing. He's never shot a gun before. Yeah. And he kills that guy and the guy, he's with two guys who work at a restaurant. And the other guy goes, what, you've never plugged someone before? I like, love that. What are you talking about? You work at a restaurant. <laughs> You guys are re- you guys are, are are restaurant employees. Why have you? Why do you have a facility with guns? Why are you like? And he, the leading, the swaggery leading man, has to kind of save face and be like, well, of course, you know, or whatever. Uh, but he's clearly, he clearly hasn't. He's never shot a gun. My my favorite thing is when Kim Cattrall's like, you know, how are you gonna? And he's like, I got a knife. You know, he says it proudly as if she's going to be like oh well you have a knife okay and then he actually gets to have the moment where he throws the knife triumphantly totally misses cut back to kurt russell going like ah god damn it just stuck in a wall (laughs) it's that moment where he climbs in it's the moment where he climbs in where every all the women are in cages in like the in the underground lair and he climbs in and he's on the roof of um what's wait who is it what's uh not uh kim cattrall but who did we, um, Kate Burton. He's on yes, Kate, Kate Burton's Burton. thing. And he goes, uh, uh, don't worry. And she goes, well, how are you going to spring us? And he goes, I have no idea. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. he really, you know, he really has no idea. He's not even faking it. He's not even saying I'll come up with something or I've got a plan or any of those things that a capable lead would say. He's, he literally is like, ha, I have no idea. I'm winging it here. You know, I think what we all want is that moment from Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark where the swordsman comes out, yeah. and there's a, you know, with the sword, flipping it around, and, and then he goes the to, yeah, he goes to, yeah. Like, that's what we want. Like, that, that is, or at least the people who I think that are our age, we love that, that energy. And that's Indiana Jones winning, but it's also cheating. And, yeah. and there's something really fun about that. And that's there's what we personality. want. Yes, and that's what we want. What's kind of wonderful about Kurt Russell is that scene would happen and he would miss. Yes. And the, and the guy would come after him and right. he would have and to like, run ah! away. He would <laughs> yeah. run away. Yes. He would have to flee. And that's, what's, that's the difference between Harrison Ford and Kurt Russell is Harrison Ford's characters are 25 degrees more capable. Right. 25% more capable. And Kurt Russell is not. He shoots a gun and he misses and he has to then figure out a new plan, you know? And that there's just that wobbliness makes him so fun in this movie. At least that's what I was delighted by while watching it. Agreed. Uh, can I share something related to the end? Oh, uh, uh, um, Ben! Jesus, like, talk, talk so much in this episode. Yak, yak, yak. Yak, 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 yak. Well, you know, come on. We've got a lot of people on mic, but I I just wanted to jump in because um <laughs> the fact that yeah, the only time he wins a fight is when he, you know, basically like on a lark throws the knife and hits Lopan. So in the book right. series, um something that it's like a detail I don't think we've really touched upon uh that they really explore is that there's all these different variations of hell. Mm. This is like kind of a yeah, running joke throughout the you're movie. You're going to go to the 
the the hell where they rip your skin off or whatever. Right, exactly. Right, so yeah. this is this recurring trope throughout the the book where it's just like they keep going to all these different funny versions of hell and they're like really specific and really like abstract and absurd. But Lopan goes to hell. The version of hell he goes to is the hell for people who were killed by idiots. Oh, that's really funny. <laughs> that rules. That's amazing. That's, that's so funny. That's that. amazing. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, so even like, again, that triumphant moment, the way that they're really looking at it is that even again, it's like he's such an idiot that like, it was just fucking dumb luck that that even like connected. Well, the other the other one was when he successfully kills the guy in heavy armor, but then gets trapped underneath him. Oh, right. oh mm-hmm. w- w- with the with the knife and the boot. While the right. fight rages around him, he's yeah. trapped under the weight of the armor clad man that he just killed. That's again so funny. And by the way, that's the one move he does after waking up after knocking himself out by shooting yes. the pillar above yes. him. Like it's like it's a fight where he increasingly keeps on getting himself stuck into fucking jams. That that moment is so good too. I mean, this is like talking about the shit that these fucking movies don't recognize where it's just like seeing a guy doing something cool at a certain point doesn't really register, especially if your movie is just a, a two hours of a guy doing something cool. But a moment like that where the guy's attacking Kurt Russell He's just knocked himself out. He's coming to. He's arguably concussed, right? All he knows is I got to get this knife out of my boot because that's all I have going for me. And then struggling to get the knife out of the boot, he by accident recognizes it's easier to push the knife through the boot than get it out. I can't even do the thing I was trying to do. And it's like, oh, an accidental win. He stabs the guy. No, never mind. Now you're caught up in fucking like plates of armor. Yeah. Oh, there's a great moment. Again, we're in the third act of the movie. And he goes, do you know what Jack Burton says at a time like this? And somebody goes, who? <laughs> Just such a good joke. But I, when When is that what? not funny? Uh. <laughs> it's, it's He's the lead. Of, he's the hero in his own mind. And people, the people around him are like, why are you here? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a great movie. It's fun, man. It's fucking fun. Can you tell I'm trying to bring this episode into to landing? I'm trying 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 to, you know, put the flaps down and bring out the landing gear and maybe play the box office game. Although Griffin, we've actually played this box office game before. I don't know if you remember. Fuck. July, it's 4th of July weekend 1986. Yeah, and this movie opened number 12 at the Jeez. box office. Which is crazy. Jesus. Wow. Crazy. This movie makes 11 in total off a budget of 25. Yikes. Yeah. And like nothing internationally reported. Although I guess I think international numbers for the 80s are just kind of not as available. So that's probably, you know. Um, can I just read this this quote quickly? Sorry. It was uh, from yeah, uh, a, a Kurt Russell career retrospective Entertainment Weekly did in 2016. Uh he said, uh, a lot of people on the junket said, how does it feel to be in a movie that you know is going to be a massive hit? This is fascinating. And I would yeah. falsely humble say, hey, well, you never know. You just got to see how it does. But inside I was going, yeah, I'm so happy. And then it came out. Like, this was the first time. He's oh. thinking, this is really? it. I finally got, I got one. it. We right. figured yeah, it yeah, out. Yeah, we, yeah. We, we've nailed the persona. It's the perfect thing. Everyone was like so bullish on this. Here are the new movies, none of which are in the top five. It's okay. opening behind Psycho 3, the one I think that Anthony Perkins oh my directed. God. Wow. The Great Mouse Detective, which Griffin is oh, why we've done this before. before. Yeah. About Last Night, 
Uh, and Under the Cherry Moon, the legendary Prince, wow. Prince movie, which we did, on, uh, we, yeah. did, we did on our show. So all of these movies are in the bottom half of the 10. They're, they're, yeah, that's 8, 9, 10, 11. Right. And then Big Trouble is 12. None of those Jesus. movies can crack the top seven. So this is kind of like a legendary flop weekend. Yeah. Where like a lot of shit is being thrown at audiences and audiences are mostly like, eh, no thanks. And you like, have like, obviously, like two giant great mouse projects. Right. You know, had long legs. The others, uh, uh, not so right. much. Right. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. to be fair, the great mouse detective had short legs. They were only like an inch he high. He did. He has tiny, <laughs> tiny little mouse legs. <laughs> tiny That's mouse legs. That's a good point. What are you talking um, about? N- number one of the box office is a sequel that is just a colossal hit. Not a great movie, but just... Is, um, it, uh, is it Rambo 2? No. Uh, more I family I always guess Rambo 2. More family focused, colossal hit, 1986. Not a great movie. Uh, what, what, is is it Spielberg adjacent at all? No, J- Jason. What's your question? Is it a vacation movie? No, not a vacation. I, it's an action movie, kids action movie. Paul. Oh, I was gonna say, look who's talking too. Um, no. hmm. Action four kids starring kids or both? Um, it stars a kid and an older guy. It's a uh, sequel. Kids getting a little older. Yeah, the kids getting older. This one, you know what, Griffin? This one always stumps you. Yeah. It, it always stumps you. Um, it's from an Oscar-winning director, although he may oh, have not oh, actually won. Oh, oh, yeah. oh, 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 oh. This one always stumps me. Because it's one of these things where when you when you describe the elements of it, it sounds like it's what hard. could possibly fill all this. But no, I know kinda, exactly what it is. You know. Don't say anymore. It's Karate Kid Part 2. Oh, oh, I okay. always get stumped by the Karate Kid franchise because when you describe it in pieces, it sounds like no movie fulfills all of that. <laughs> yeah. Right. And it was a hit. Yeah. It was a huge, like, like world-beating phenomenon, even the second one, which, like, isn't that good? And by the way, another movie that takes place and, and, and leans more into this fascination with culture overseas. I mean, yeah, yeah. Asian culture, yes, yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, that no, it's it's a big thing at the time, like undoubtedly. Uh, number two at the box office is a comedy Griffin mm. that we've it, again, of course, we've done this box office game. It's kind of the launch done it within of this a, calendar. A fascinating year. star career. My brain is mush now. Uh, Nineteen eighty six. Fascinating comic star career. star career. We were just talking about a movie he was in. Right. Yes. 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 I got something on this one as well because I went, what leading man could this possibly describe? And the answer is, of course, it's Rodney. Oh, is it? Uh, is it uh, back, back to, to school? school? Yeah, it is not Rodney. What? But back to school. Griffin is number three. At the okay. Box office. Okay. So you did okay. get it. You okay. did get it. Okay. You did okay. get it. Okay. But this is a different. <laughs> no, fascinating... this is a, a more diminutive. Uh, comic Dudley Moore actor. Not Dudley Moore. What? Even more diminutive than Dudley Moore. Tinier wow. than Dudley. I think so. And now I want to do a height comparison, but Dudley I'm pretty sure this guy's little. small. Is he young? This guy's really small. Is he young? No. This guy is. I want to tell you. Oh, I know what it is. I know what it is. Twins. Ruthless people? No, it's neither. It's ruthless people. There you uh, go. Oh, wow. I was going to say, you know what I thought it was going to be? First Bueller's. But then when I heard small, I was like, okay, well, I can't. No, yeah. we're talking small. Dudley yeah. Moore yeah. towers over 410 Danny DeVito at 5'3". So, yeah. <laughs> you know. Uh, um, number three is Back to School. Okay. Which is doing great, which is yeah. kicking ass, which yeah. made 10 times as much money as fucking Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah. Like, wow. Back to School was a huge hit. Huge hit. Uh, number four is the biggest movie of the year, maybe, or second, you know, one of the giant hits of the year. Yeah. 1986. Uh, biggest movie of 1986 would be, uh, is it a franchise movie? 
No. Well, there's a sequel coming one day, maybe, eventually. A, oh, it is, of course, the movie <laughs> Top Gun. Top Gun. Oh. Uh, wow. One day we'll get the sequel, right, guys? Right? Maybe, maybe uh, someday. someday. <laughs> with, the, with the way the water levels are rising, who knows? At number five of the box office, it's a comedy. It has one of America's most iconic stars leaning on a desk wearing a nice sweater. Uh, this is the, it's, uh, I always get the name mixed up. It's Legal Eagles. Legal Eagles. Wow. Redford, Winger, <laughs> Hannah. Yeah. An Ivan Reitman film, speaking An Ivan of twins. Reitman film. An Ivan oh, Reitman. This is his, right? Twins is two years later. Yeah. Funny. Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. Um, that's your top five. And then number six, Paul, Running Scared. Running Scared. Hey. Oh, wow. so we've done this weekend twice before. And number seven. No, no Running Scared was new last week. Oh, okay. And number okay. seven, okay. Ferris okay. Bueller. So, wow. Oh, there we are. Oh, interesting. There you go. At what, at, 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 did it open at seven? Or how long? Is, it, where no, is it? It's been, it's been out for a month. It's made 33 okay. of its yeah, yeah. $70 million. So it's going to be around for a while. That movie was massive to me. Yeah, oh, like, me too. That was massive. Uh, Paul Labyrinth is also out right now, just to speak of, you know, wow. other. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and as is Gung Ho. Oh, wow. Look at Gung this. Ho. Look oh, at wow. This. It, it is interesting. No, you were saying this, but just this really was the peak of uh, uh, Western fascination with the East. And, uh, you know, you know they got all kinds of countries over there. Yeah, you yeah. heard of these guys? Like, right. it truly right. is that energy. Gung Ho, I, I, especially. I feel like the things, like, Gung Ho is a movie that's hard to watch now. Like something like it's Big tough. Trouble is more like w what is complicated about its legacy is only that it was following in such a trend of like every Asian person is magical in some way or another. Right. In this movie, sure. it's literally magical. And something like Mr. Miyagi, it's like you are the wisest, most profound, most talented. I think, you know, you have these character actors who suddenly are getting elevated to like a higher level. There's more representation, but the representation is so limited in terms of like you have to be this kind of perfect, angelic, saintly or demon like character. At least this the thing about this movie is at least it lets it's it's uh, Asian American actors, or, you know, it's big cast. Yeah. Talk like normal people. Well, you yeah, know they're what not, I mean? Like, they're you not know, like, accented yeah. in a way that is like, there's nothing demeaning about these people. Not and just and dispense yeah. like, you know, sort of fortune cookie wisdom no, or whatever, I, you I know, all that the, shit. The complaint right. is obviously you're siloing them into the only two things they're allowed to do, but they're doing yes. those two things in a way where they're given a lot more humanity and respect than they were in any other movies of this time. You also just have to acknowledge the fact that the movie has essentially two Caucasian speaking roles. Like, yeah. it really yeah, is just in terms of how many people got work off of this fucking movie and got work in primary positions, you know? And I will. Yeah, I mean, I know we're saying it and saying it, but it's like they're not they're not the butt of the joke. It's not like there's no like how to use these chopsticks or the like white it's people almost are like the butts of the joke. The yeah. white people are the morons. Yeah. I was just going to say, if anything, Kurt Russell is the butt of the joke over and over and over again. And, and then control told. to a secondary degree. Yeah. Yes. So. Look, I mean, my wife just sent me a, a picture of my child nodding off. I just would love to be done, guys. This I know you thing. want the record. Guys, every episode now is like a ticking clock. No, no, no. We got to do it naturally. We got to do it naturally. I'm not going to. We're not. We don't need to force a record. And and listen, I, I thought Alex's episode was fantastic and deserved its runtime. So I'm not trying to challenge a great a great episode. Yeah, we're not. We don't want to beat it for no reason. 
if you want to like, you know, jump in on an ad read or maybe Griffin can really just go to town, <laughs> yeah. you know, on like a Brooklyn and read, we might right. get there. We could really beef up the ad reads. This episode this has half three an hour half hour reads. long ad reads. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, no, no, that's it's incentive for you guys to come back that, yeah. you know, for those of us who, when I hear ring, ring, and I hit the fast forward button, uh, people just fast forwarding for minutes and minutes and being like, what the fuck is going on? This commercial is still going? I heard people like who who hate how long the ad reads are also go. And he does that thing where every ad read starts with either bring, bring or David. And I'm like, yeah, motherfuckers, <laughs> I do that for you. I start the yeah. warning one Thank of two ways so you get the warning and you can skip. Skip ahead if you want. By the way, I was doing something this week on Twitch uh, for the DoorDash channel mm. uh, on Twitch. I was hosting a, an e-gaming competition and some of the, the the notes in the chat were like, oh man, I can't believe you guys are, this is just a big ad for DoorDash. I'm like, you're on the DoorDash channel <laughs> on Twitch. <laughs> So the let's fuck just is the like, matter with you? like, let's just like, <laughs> just like, look at what, let's look at the specifics here. You clicked the link. You went here of your own volition. What did you, what did you think this would be? Yeah, this like, is, and by the way, it was very light on the ads, but we just mentioned it, uh, you know, whenever we have to mention it, it wasn't over, but it's like, you are literally on, when you're looking at me, there's a logo for DoorDash underneath me. Like, Yeah. Like, you, like the note that I've sold out on some level, it's like, I'm not hiding it. I'm here on the DoorDash channel helping them do a very cool event that they were doing. And uh, that was it. But uh, it was so funny. Like, people really feel like now, they are. Uh, this is starting doing... to feel like an ad for DoorDash. No. Anyway, no here's not. the thing. No, not just convenience no. stores. Uh, not just restaurants <laughs> anymore. Now convenience stores. I, I, look, I'm not going to accept this joke because we're, we're not going to just, you know, interrupt this ad with more company plugs. Because, uh, of course, we know this episode was brought to you by Mubi, 3Chi, and Purple. They are the only sponsors of this episode. Congratulations. You checked the spreadsheet. Good I did. Job. I'm so proud I got that link open. Very time. well done. Very well done. Uh, Paul, Jason, uh, do you have any of the 10,000 things either of you are working on any given moment to plug? When will this come out? This will come out very soon. It's coming out October, October 3rd. 3rd. Oh, nice. Okay, great. Next week. So, yeah. um, so if you are, uh, interested, please check out, obviously, the, the podcast that Paul and I do with, uh, June Diane Raphael called How Did This Get Made? Um, if you like this show, uh, I think you will like our show. It's a it's a it's a show about bad movies, and it's us uh, and usually a guest talking about bad movies. I'm also a voice in a new Star Trek animated show uh, called Prodigy. Hell yeah! That is um, coming out on that. Nickelodeon uh, and is absolutely stunningly gorgeous um, and really fun to be in the Star Trek world. Um, as much fun, uh, Griff, as it seemed like you were having in the He Man world. I loved seeing you in there as Orca. Great work. Oh, it's it's like, it's great. It's just everyone is so nice and normal to you online. I I loved uh, doing it. Yeah, it's bizarre. I, uh, not to go off on a tangent here, but Jason, do you find that when you do things like this, you immediately feel like, well, this isn't real. Like, this doesn't count. If I'm in it, then this franchise oh, yeah. no longer has legitimacy. Oh, yeah. Well, that's the why would I want to be part of a club that would have me as a member? You know, right. Yeah, right. I'm like, I have single handedly made this expensive fan fiction. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. But that, but, you know, it, but I'm so I it delights me. So I'm like, oh, good. I hope I, I hope nobody notices. But I'm I get to be in, in Star Trek. Great. Yeah. Let's do Rules. it. 
rules. I'll be Orko forever if they. Oh, you me. know what I want? Except to I talk can't. About? He's dead. Too bad. What? what here's do you talk here's about? how we could break the record, but I'm not even going to introduce it. Have you seen Star Wars Visions? Oh well, this I is haven't a whole yet. Comic. I need to watch it. I haven't watched it. Jason, Jason, this is the thing. We haven't. So Have it has you to be... seen Star Wars Visions? We need to talk Bonus about content. Visions. Bonus content. David and I have not watched an episode no. between us. I want to watch it. Bonus now. content. We put it somewhere. I'm I'm in. I like. I want to talk about it a lot. Me too. Would you be surprised to hear that every single episode has Kid Fisto in it? Oh my fucking god! What? I'm just kidding. What? Damn. Okay, fuck. Get I was ready. Get ready. Very jazz. TC TC fourteen. There is an erotic TC fourteen episode. What? All right. All right. Just pushing our buttons. There's a There's a hentai episode that stars TC fourteen. Do you know who is in the cast of Star Wars Visions? James Hong. Wow. Of course oh. he is. Of course he is. Of course he is. I really can't recommend Star Wars Visions enough. I know a lot of people on this uh, fandom nope. love Star Wars. So um, it's, it's exceptional. We'll watch ahead, it. We'll Paul. do we'll a, a three-hour bonus episode on it. Uh, well, I mean, I'm just basically I'm just going to basically do uh, the same uh, pitch that Jason did. Yes, you can listen to Huds Get Made, which I think your audience will like. I also will say that I think you'll like the other show that I do uh, called Unspooled, mm-hmm. where we talk about great movies. We just are in the middle of our horror series right now. We're called Scaretober. Uh, we're starting off with The Exorcist. We're going into the cabinet of Dr. Calgary. Uh, and uh, when we get our 100 best films, we were going to blast them into outer space. Uh, Griff has been on that show. Uh, mm-hmm. A pleasure. Cool. Uh, and I'm also on Star Trek. I'm on Star Trek Lower Decks. Ooh, the uh, comedic uh, one, which is uh, quite funny. And um, uh, there was a great episode that just recently came. I've been keeping it secret for a while. But uh, uh, my character's mother is played by June Diane Raphael. And uh, I, won't tell you the, I won't tell you the larger wow. premise of it, which is actually uh, very funny and, and more disturbing. But uh, check it out. Uh, I play uh, Lieutenant Billups on all those episodes. Wow. Well, and just, wow. just to be clear, June is your wife and is playing yes. your mother. Yes. Just to be clear. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Yep. Uh, cool. Very, Check all that very out. cool. Um, I, I appreciate uh, your guys' modesty, but it is funny to hear you trying to pitch how did this get made and unspooled to our listeners as if they could somehow have skipped over those shows and gotten to <laughs> ours first. You guys, you guys are, you guys have got the goods. I mean, we were, we were just talking about your show the other day. Yeah, I feel like there's probably a pretty weird big separation that uh, that is that, that I I love. You know, I'm uh, this has been one of my pandemic shows. You know, one ah. of my one of my pandemic listens has been this show because it allowed me to do also concurrent film watches. Mm. You know, so I could do the the Elaine May movies. I could do I I, I go backwards. I I listened to all of the first Star Wars episodes because I when I found oh you God. guys, I when I found you guys it was it was years ago, but it still was years after that. But I was like, oh, I never listened to those first. I can't believe you listened to that. I can't believe it. Griffin yeah, and David wild. present. Yes, I remember episodes. that. I remember. You're a present head now. That's what our fans used to call themselves. Exactly. Uh, so it's been really fun to listen to. And then have a reason to watch. This is what I love about, I think what people like about our show and what I've enjoyed about your show, especially during the pandemic is 
be dialing in a filmography and watching along and getting to then have tune into your conversations because I like hearing you guys the same way that I, like I said, action boys is a Patreon podcast that I also love and have done a similar thing with that have really given me a reason to both watch movies, rewatch movies, and then hear people that I love talk about them. You know, I, well, I will say this, that uh, I was recently getting into a thing on my discord because Amy and I have been picking movies to go to space, a uh, hundred movies to go to space. And we've had a very strong uh, agreement that one movie from one director. And that has really sure. made people furious, right? Because how can you just make Spielberg have one movie? How can you have, you know, uh, or someone else have one movie? And, uh, and what's been fun about it is, well, it's the exercise. The exercise is simply that. And that's not, you know, it, it, this is all for up for debate. Um, and I said, you know, people are like, well, how can you decide that that's the movie when they have a body of work? I said, well, that's why you need to listen to Blank Check because they will, they will determine, mm. you can listen to, eh, you can listen to the body of work. You can really see the full picture right now. Like we have the Wes Anderson on our list with a movie. We're not sure that that's the one that's going to stay, but we know he's earned a spot on the yes, list. We just don't know what, and yeah, it's we more doesn't fun know. that way. And I yeah. know what my pick is for that, but other people probably have different picks for that. Yeah, for like the Wes for, Anderson for Wes for Wes Anderson. Right. Yeah, well, let's yeah. go around the horn. What's your Wes Anderson? Grand Budapest for me. That to me is his magnum opus. That but, is uh, uh, that's yeah. Amy Nicholson's point of view as well. Yeah, well, Amy and I are two really smart, interesting, really beautiful wow. people. I, I yeah. split between Rushmore and Budapest, but I maybe lean towards Rushmore for personal reasons, but also because it's got the the lightning in a bottle solidification of a right. voice energy. Yeah, Royal Tenenbaums, baby. Yeah, I mean, yeah. not a bad yeah. movie. Not too bad that one, but I think it, I think it's what hits you when you know. Yes. And that movie yeah, just hit me right at the right time. I kind of feel like Grand Budapest encapsulates everything that is great about Wes Anderson in one film. It's like it's everything perfectly done, not overdone. Mm -hmm. Royal Tenenbaums gets me in an emotional way. I love that cast. I love the look. I love the feel. But then I I also lean towards Rushmore as being the introduction, which was so definitively defining of the future of the way that people, like, like the way that Quentin Tarantino entered in, like, I, like even though Reservoir Dogs first, but I think Pulp Fiction has a longer lasting effect on the film world. I think that Rush, Rushmore does too. So I, I, I go back and forth right yeah. between Rushmore and, and, and Tenenbaums. It, it, it's tricky, it's, but yeah, it's a hard one. It's, it's, a, it's hard, it's hard. It's He's a hard. fun exercise and this is a good reason to listen to Unspooled. And can I give you guys one more around the horn? Just for, this is why we talked about it. One more around the horn because this is one that I don't have an answer to. Your Cohen brothers. What's your one Cohen brother? Miller's Crossing. Wow. Okay. That one's harder. I don't know, Griff. Who do you? Mine's Barton Fink, which is one of my favorite all-time movies. But I know that would be a tougher sell for everyone. I watched it a month ago. It's so good. I love that movie so. It's much. so good. I I shift on this a lot because my personal favorite by a, a fair distance is Hudsucker Roxy, which I could yeah, never, I ever I, argue I, is Tougher to argue movie. is the space it's, movie. That right, is right, one right. of your craziest takes. Oh, I love it. I, I love, love it so movie, much. Though. I'm saying personal preference. I would yeah, never yeah, yeah. objectively argue it's the best one. I wouldn't even dare make that argument. For a while, I felt like Lewin Davis was sort of like the best encapsulation of, of their whole worldview and everything. It's a basic-ass opinion, but I've watched Fargo like twice in the last year and i've maybe come around to that being just like th the perfect movie there's nothing wrong with that opinion yeah that movie is incredible that and no country are 
just absolutely incredible I, I own masterpieces. No watch. Yeah. But um, for me, Miller's Crossing is just exceptional. I it's just, it, that's, a, but again, it's the movie that it came out like when I was, I think, either just leaving high school or just starting college. So I watched it constantly. You know, I was obsessed with it. I need to give David, I, David well, is like, please let this stop. He's, he oh, knows. Sorry, sorry. Go like, to your he's child. either going to make, make <laughs> no. it or not. You can run. Do you want to check on the baby, David? I love you guys, to be clear. David I love you guys is so much. crumbling. Go David for it. Is Go for it. Get out of here. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> All right, you know what? That's a great call. You guys chat. Maybe you'll hit the record. David, David, (laughs) I'm going to try to wrap up the episode. I ask one thing of you. Leave your chair where you're recording. Go check to see if your baby is still awake. If she is still awake, you have to run back in and just give us a thumbs up to let us know that you made it in time. And then you can run back to her. All right. Okay. Bye, guys. Okay. Bye. Thank you all for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you to Marie Barty for our social media. Thank you to AJ McKeon and uh, Alex Barron for editing. Oh, you know what we didn't talk about? Oh, what? Uh, so, hey, <laughs> I just am looking yeah. at my notes. Sure. Yeah, producer Ben, what, what, what's when up? When they drink the potion and they go in the elevator. Yeah. And then they all have that moment where they're like, I feel pretty good. I That's feel some great. fucking king shit. That shit fucking rules. It lasts for like 30 seconds. It lasts for a long time. Uh, But that, by the way, that's the elevator. Two thumbs up. We got the thumbs up. We got the thumbs up. And he logged off. Wrap it up. Smell you later, fart heads. Shut it down, Ben. All right. Thank you to Joe Bow and Pat Reynolds for our artwork. Go to (laughs) blankies.red.com for some real nerdy shit. Go to patreon.com slash blank check. For Blake Check special features where we're doing the mummy movies. Brendan Fraser arguably comes closer to pulling off the Kurt Russell split in the first mummy than anyone has since, or at least until Chris Pratt. Tune in next week for Prince of Darkness with Keith Phipps. And as always, I've just sent to the chat if everyone wants to open the link. It is a photo from Kate Hudson's annual Halloween party where Zach Braff dressed up as Jack Burton and took a photo with Kurt Russell not wearing a Halloween costume. Ben, shut up. Just keep it in.